tetragrammaton. You know, many of them young, some of them, you know, older, more experienced, who come up with ideas for new tech products and new tech companies. And uh, they, you know, they and typically a small group of their friends get together and they decide to kind of throw the harpoon and start a start a company and try to build a product. And, you know, and then they, you know, they need they need some level of mo- they need some level of money and then they need like s- some level of basically support, like like institutional support. So, you know, they're often they're often young, less experienced. They often um, have not been through the journey before. They're going to need to gather a lot of resources along the way. They're going to need to hire a lot of people. They're going to, you know, basically they'll have big opportunities they want to pursue. They'll have uh, problems that will pop up. You know, things they need. Even even the great successful uh, companies, you know, from the outside, they look like everything is great. On the inside, they're typically, you know, some form of rolling disaster. There's always something going wrong. So basically, they, you know, they, they're sort of at some point looking for partners um, who can help them do that. And so venture capital kind of bundles the money, you know, kind of with the help. And then, you know, a couple of, uh, you know, probably misnomers to it. You know, one is the, you would think like the day job is saying yes, you know, to, to new companies. It's actually saying no, you know, we pass on almost everything. So, you know, the sort of, uh, you know, cynical, the sort of a black humor joke is, uh, you know, our, our, our day job is crushing entrepreneurs' hopes and dreams. Um, <laughs> you know, but, you know, that said, you know, the, the good ones view that as a challenge, right? And they view us as kind of the initial test to see if they'll be able to clear the bar, because if they can clear the bar with us, then they'll have a good chance of being able to clear the bar with future recruits or customers, right? Or, or um, you know, other kinds of people they'll need to, to say yes to them in the future. And so, yeah, we, we sort of present that, we sort of provide the initial gate. Um, another kind of misnomer would be that, you know, tech, tech kind of has this reputation for, you know, for being very fast moving, right? And so things, you know, technology is developing quickly. But it actually turns out we're one of the sort of slowest investors. Venture capital is one of the slowest kinds of, of uh, sort of investment money in the world because to build any kind of great company is, you know, anything that you're going to remember that's going to last. It's a 10, 20 year project kind of at the minimum. And so when we invest, we, we invest assuming we're going to be in for at least a decade. Um, and so in, we're just there, you know, for a very long time every day, you know, helping them work through things. You know, we, we basically, we never press to kind of get our, get our money back. Um, we're always trying to kind of help them build more, you know, more value. Uh, when you're running a venture capital firm, you're basically running a family of funds that run across basically 20 years, right? So you're sort of raising money on a new fund. You've got an older fund that has companies that are three years old. You've got an older fund that's got companies that are eight years old and so forth. And so... You kind of have this this thing where you're raising money that um, it's like planting trees. You're planting trees. You're raising money uh, on uh, on things that uh, you know won't pay out for a decade. But you know if you've been in the business for a while, you have things ultimately that are succeeding from a decade ago, and you just kind of keep the process rolling. You see the same mistakes that founders make across the board, or are there different mistakes all the time? That's <laughs> the cliche success. Well, all, all happy companies are the same. Uh, all unhappy companies uh, have, a, have a unique story. For sure, there are patterns to the mistakes. Um, there are lots of different mistakes to be made over time. Have made them all. What are the obvious? Out. What are the obvious ones? I mean, so the the, the 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 biggest category by far is internal dissension on the team, um, right? So so these things are never solo acts. It's it's always it's always a team, and uh, this will not come as a shock to you. It turns out when you have a team of people, even if they like start out getting along really well. Even if they like consider themselves, you know, kind of, you know, brothers and sisters, like under the pressure of, you know, of success, of su- also of success, particularly in success, you see people come apart. Exactly right. So right, so if right, money and puts it, money and fame, like basically reveal the true person, like mm-hmm. in, in in a lot of ways, right? And so uh, you know, yes, there's that. People lose their minds. Also, just like you know, it's like it's high stress, right? And so you know, things go wrong. 
it's very easy to develop, you know, resentments. Um, it's very easy, you know, because just you're under people, these founders are under so much pressure. And so it's very easy to develop resentments of like, I can't believe you're hogging the limelight. You know, the other one's like, well, I can't believe you're not pulling your weight. And then they kind of get in this kind of downward spiral. Same as a rock band. Yeah, exactly. Same right. Same. And so it's, it's like most of it, like it's sort of my big conclusion is like, it's basically a tech startup might, might or might not work. And whether it, fundamentally, whether it works or not, is basically a function of does it build something that people want and can I kind of build a business around is that. Is it as simple as that? If they make something people want, it's probably going to be okay? Well, if the team holds together, right? So, uh, so, 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 so that's, that's the thing. So, so uh, another is an old uh, venture capital uh, adage, which is uh, more companies die from suicide than homicide. So, like, if, look, if it's not working, then the team is going to really be pressing each other hard, and, and, you know, that can easily go sideways. If it does work, the team can blow up for the reasons we discussed. Um, and so... Yeah, it's it's basically you know, and this is what the speech we always kind of give 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 the founders is like, look, if, if you if you guys can kind of cohere together and stay, you know, basically as an integrated you know team and group and trust each other through the hard times, you know, there's there's almost always a way through the specific difficult thing of the moment. You know, there's very few kind of non-recoverable mistakes, um, but you have to really stay together. And then you know, basically what you see with a lot of these companies is it's, is you know, at some point if there's a crack on the team. That crack then magnifies out and ultimately, you know, in, in, in some cases can actually destroy the company. And, and I would say most of it's that. Now, this is a speech I was just with uh, these two young founders last night who are all fired up for their new, their new, their new AI company. And this is this, they, they sort of were asking about the failure cases. And I was like, yeah, the most likely failure cases, you guys are going to turn on each other. Right. And, you know, of course, they get legitimately they get the stricken look on their face. Right. And then, and then you know, immediately followed by, well, of course, that's not going to happen to us. And it's like, yeah. well, yeah, but. But also half the marriages end in divorce. Like, it's the same. Exactly. 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 It's, it's actually marriage. Um, you know, I think there's an argument to be made. I'm not like a therapy person, but like, I think there's an argument to be, should be made that people should think about the partnerships, the way that business partnerships, the way they think about marriages. I think there's an argument to be made that, you know, marriage counseling, you know, might be helpful. <laughs> you know, some sort of, let's say, intentional process of, of developing trust and communication. You know, that said, look, when, when these things get started, it's like a marriage. They're so euphoric and excited and they feel so tightly bonded that they don't want to ever imagine that that could ever actually happen. Um, and so when it does happen, it usually comes as, as an enormous shock. And, 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 and that's probably the single biggest company killer is when that happens. Will you say the primary thing people are coming to you for is money or is there more to the picture? Yeah, so I think it's a lot. I think it's more than that. So I'll just tell you what we always what we always wanted. So what we what my partner Ben and I always wanted when we were starting, we started our own companies for 15 years before we we started a venture firm to back other people's companies. And you know, basically, it's just like look, we we knew what we wanted to build. Like we knew what the product was. We knew what what vision wise we had it. But it's just all of the mechanics. And maybe here's a difference, maybe, uh, you know, versus like my, you know, friends like you working in the entertainment business is, you know, if, if a band comes together, people do a, a movie, like maybe they, you know, maybe they do an album, maybe they do a movie, you know, maybe they do a sequel, maybe they don't, right? Whereas with tech companies, it's more like for them to work, they really have to compound over, like I said, over like a decade or two decades. And so there, there's no, like, well, sometimes they'll do it for two years, they'll sell the company, but that's not the big success case. Those, those are kind of small scale successes usually. Like to build something important and valuable, it has to be a decade or two decades. And so... They have to really learn how to build an institution. And to do that, you know, typically they need a level of, you know, sort of, I would say, knowledge, you know, support, um, expertise, access to resources. Another metaphor I use a lot is that building a tech company, it's like a snowball rolling down a hill. If it's working well, it's, it's growing as it rolls. Like, so it's sort, of, it's sort of, you know, the way a snowball kind of accretes snow and gets bigger, a, a, a startup, you know, in theory is accreting resources, right? And so it, it's kind of pulling people in. You know, it's pulling in more engineers, product designers, right? It's pulling in the right kinds of executives it needs to build its team. It's pulling in customers. It's pulling in partnerships. It's pulling in, you know, press attention, building a brand. It's sort of, you know, sort of drawing all these resources to itself. And of course, there's there's a competition among all the different startups of that same generation to to get all those resources. And so they're they're fighting, <laughs> they're fighting with the other snowballs as they roll down the hill. 
for all that stuff. And so it, it just, it, it has, over time, it has just turned out that it's like very helpful to most of those teams if they've got somebody, if they've got something of the form of a venture capital firm, some, some set of people behind them who have done, have done it before and know how to do it. You know, we're, we don't run the companies, like we're not, you know, this is not like private equity, like we don't, we don't come in and like run the show, but um, you know, wh who's their first call? basically when something goes wrong or when they need something. Well, I'll give you, you know, a lot of what we do is like you close candidates, you know, they'll be talking to some engineer, they'll be in a shootout, you know, with like Google and then three other startups to hire an engineer. And so they'll roll me in and I'll, you know, spend an hour with the person. And basically, you know, part of it is just like help them, um, you know, kind of, kind of, you know, help, help the candidate get over the hump. But also like, well, one of the tricks you can do when you have like a big venture capital firm like ours is you can say to a candidate, you might be like, well, look, the candidate might be thinking I could go to Google and I just have like, I'm, I know everybody's going to think I made a great decision in my career. Even if it doesn't go well, I've got Google on my resume. If I go to the startup, who's even going to care what I did if the startup doesn't work? Like, you know, am I going to be stranded if the, if the startup fails? And so one of the things we get to do is we get to say, look, if it doesn't work, we, we will know you and you'll be a member of our family as well. Mm -hmm. And we will, and we have, you know, hundreds of other companies and we know all the big, and we, and we will help make sure that your career prospers even in the wake of a failure and we will vouch for you, you know, kind of through that. And so there's like a hundred different versions of that. And so I think that that's most, I mean, that's how we win. We, we don't win on price. We win on, um, you know, we win basically on being able to be their partner. Did you have experience with VCs from the founder side? Yeah. Yeah. Very tell much me so. about, tell me, give me an example. What was that like? Yeah, so look, I had really good experiences. I had, I had, I had really good experiences. I raised money in 1995. My partner Jim Clark and I at the time raised money in actually 1994 from a firm called Kleiner Perkins, which was at the time, you know, considered kind of the top venture capital firm. I worked with them for five years. We then, Ben and I started a company in 99. We raised money from Benchmark, which at the, to at the time was one of the top firms. Um, we worked, worked with them for a long time. And then, you know, Ben and I had also been angel investors. And so we had invested in, you know, at the, you know, probably by the time we started the firm, you know, over a hundred startups, we were in, and we, we were kind of from the side kind of working with a lot of the founders and a lot of the things we were working with the founders on was navigating the venture landscape, uh, helping them meet the right firms. And, and then actually helping to kind of, we, we were actually the marriage counselors a lot of the time. So we were kind of helping them kind of unwind when their, when their relationship with their VCs, we get all screwed up. We would kind of help them kind of unwind that. And so, um, you know, we just, we, we kind of, you know, we became a, so what you might call it, expert customer. And, uh, and then at some point we're like, okay, like this, yeah, we could probably do this. It seems like a better position to be in coming from that, having that experience has to make you better at being on the other side of the, of the table. Yeah. So our argument is very much that. Our, our argument is we have been you. Uh, we have been through everything you've been through. We, we, we have made every mistake that you're going to make. Um, we have figured out ways to get through all those mistakes, right? And, and then we, we deeply understand you. We understand what you're trying to do. And um, you know, we, we're going we're to sympathize with you along the way. There is a counter argument uh, to that that I, I think about a lot. Um, and it's the argument that VCs who have not started companies use against us. And basically the argument goes that if you're a former operator, founder like we are, you, you will tend to get emotionally entangled with the, with the companies and you'll become not objective and, and not clinical. Um, and at some point when you're investing money, and, and even when you're actually advising companies, at some point you need to get clinical. Like, you know, there, there are certain moments in time where you need to like actually recognize the truth and tell the truth both to yourselves and to the companies, right, and to, uh, and to everybody else. Um, and so the argument goes that basically you, you, might, you, might be, you might be a better founder, you might actually be a worse investor as, as, as a result of the inability to get, to get clinical. You know, we, we try to offset that by, you know, kind of being very conscious of that and trying to, you know, kind of retain our critical faculties. Um, you know, we, we do like internal portfolio reviews every quarter, and so we kind of, you know, it's kind of force ourselves to like basically tell the truth about everything. <laughs> You know, look, having said that, you know, uh, if the failure cases, you know, we get emotionally entangled with, with somebody working hard to realize our dream over a decade, you know, fair enough. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, it's, I, think it, I think it's much better to err on that side um, yeah. and, and, get, and get the payoff of that, which is like, we're really there. Like, we're, we're really deeply there. Like, we don't quit. We don't walk away. 
you know, we, you know, we, we care tremendously. We, we have all of the added motivation that comes from caring tremendously. Pick an example of a story of a company that you've either invested in or been part of, <laughs> a success story, and walk me through all of the stages of what happens, the ups and downs along the way, a case study. Yeah, I'm gonna use I'm gonna use code I'm gonna use code, code names for the companies because okay. I, I don't want to pick sure. on or speak for the individual sure. companies. And so uh, I mean, look, I, I I have a company right now. Um, I'm gonna call it just uh, Company S, and you know, it it was the easy one. Like it was two founders um, who had started a previous company together. Their previous company went through a lot of ups and downs. It actually hit the financial crisis really hard in 2008 and almost blew up, and they had to make all these changes. Uh, and then they ended up selling it to a uh, to a big company, and then they basically were like, all right, we wanna we wanna we wanna you know do 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 the new thing. And, and they just like, it was, I don't know, it's like watching, you know, Babe Ruth or something, you know, point to the place in the, in the outfield where he's going to hit the home run. And they just like hit the ground running. You know, they've had issues along the way, but it's mostly been this like incredibly smooth, you know, it's just like this well-oiled machine. You know, they've, they've just, they've, they've just hit like a, a huge, you know, kind of revenue milestone. They're not, you know, increasingly, you know, important in their, in their industry. You know, every once in a while you get one that goes that well. A lot of what happens is just like, you know, in the beginning, everything is a dream. Um, it's a clean sheet of paper. You know, it's this incredible moment of sort of, um, what do they call it? It's like a liminal moment um, where you can basically design your dream. Um, and your dream is the product you've always wanted to build. And your dream is the, the company you've always wanted to have. And you kind of think, think of those in parallel. And you bring in all the smart people you know, and it just like, it just seems like everything's going to be great. You kind of expect it's going to be hard, but like you, you're, you're all fired up. And then basically what happens is just reality just like punches you in the face over and over and over again. And, you know, generally that takes the mode, the, the mode of basically people telling you no. Right. And so VCs tell you, no, they won't fund you. Employees tell you, no, they won't join your company. You know, customers tell you, no, they won't buy your product and kind of all the way through. And then, you know, disaster strikes every month or two in one form or another. We talk a lot about the uh, emotional treadmill, which is sort of the, the, the founder sort of psychology, sort of uh, my, my famous line on that was it, it sort of it, it alternates between euphoria and terror. And then um, it turns out that lack of sleep uh, enhances both of those. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. And so it's the four in the morning. Uh, Okay, well, there's another thing which is, um, is related to this, which is the, the, the founders have to put on a brave face, like, so that they, they have to always basically act like everything's going great, because otherwise it'll shake confidence, right? And they'll, they'll lose team members and they won't be able to raise money or whatever. So they always kind of have to act like it's going really well. And in fact, going to like a party with like a lot of founders is really funny watching them because everybody's, you know, everybody's asking each other, well, how's it going? And everybody's got this like very forced grin on their face. And they're like, oh, everything's going great. And like, everybody's just dying inside, right? But like, nobody can say it. <laughs> Right. And so I always think about like, it's the four in the morning kind of thing where you're staring at the ceiling. Right. And, you know, yesterday it felt like you had the tiger by the tail and today it feels like it's all going to fall apart and just like, oh my God. Right. And then, and then the other thing I find is like, that doesn't really ever moderate. Like if you talk to a lot of people who are still, you know, founders running their companies 10 or 20 years later, you know, a lot of their life is every morning they open up their email inbox and it's just like a descent into hell, right? It's just like one person after another with an issue and a complaint and a problem and I quit and fuck you and like just like on and on and on. And they got to like, you know, get up in the morning and like put on the, you know, put, put on the hoodie and, and head in there and like, just like confront all these things head on. You know, some of them love to do that and battle their way through every step. I mean, some of them check out. Some of them just get a few years into it and they're like, I just hate living, you know, this way. I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm becoming, you know, I'm, I'm becoming unhealthy. You know, people develop, you know, people develop alcohol problems, drug problems, all these things. What's probably striking about this is like, wow, this sounds like it's like mostly psychological, right? And it's like, yeah, it's, I think it's mostly psychological. Well, it's pressure. It's, yeah. it's a tremendous amount of stress. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. How small is the world of VCs and founders? Like altogether, is it hundreds of people? Do you know everybody? Is it thousands of people? Is it hundreds of thousands? 
Yeah, so I'll say the following. So one is it doesn't really ever stabilize. And so many other industries, and I think music was probably like this for a long time. I don't know if it still is, but um, you know, at some point in a lot of in a lot of businesses, basically things stabilize, and you just have like a certain number of record labels or a certain number of movie studios, and you know, at some point, and then every once in a while, there's like yeah, small changes. This is what's uh, in evolution they call it punctuated equilibrium, right? And so things are kind of cruising along, and then every once in a while, there's like a disruptive moment, right? So if somebody somebody develops hip hop or something, and like okay. everything changes, but like you can kind of count those right uh, over time. Right? Right? And those are like specific moments people write books about and they're really big deals, right? Or every once in a while, like a movie studio will go under, but like it's actually very rare. Like, you know, Warner Brothers is still in business, you know, 100 years later. Tech never stabilizes like that. Like it, it always kind of looks like it's stabilized and then basically there's some earthquake um, in the form of basically disruptive technology change. And then basically everything gets kind of tossed up in the air and, and kind of redone. And, and and these platform shifts happen like actually quite regularly. It's like every five years. And so, you know, it's like for computers, it was mainframe to PCs to, to, to mobile, right? And then for, you know, internet, you know, it was one point no internet and then internet and then cloud and then social. Now there's this AI thing, right? And so every time you have one of these kind of earthquakes, it sort of, re, it sort of recalibrates everything. You know, it's like the meteor, the meteor strike hits and the dinosaurs die and, the, you know, the, bird, and the birds take off kind of thing. So, you know, because that's sort of a more common thing in our world, there's just more of this pattern of, and then the, the new thing is often led by people who were not important in the previous wave, right? Because it's, it's sort of a lot of it's kids, a lot of it's kids who kind of grew up with whatever the new thing is, and they just have a different take on, on how the world should look. I was an example of that. And so, um, yeah, so there's like, basically, there's actually a lot of turnover. Like, the, you know, there are venture firms that are 50 years old, but, you know, they're on generation five or six of partners, and, and a lot of their peers from when they were younger, you know, no longer exist. Um, and, and so whether they're in the same firm anymore is like an open question. You know, the company's going to last for a long time. Generally, at some point, the companies basically become, you know, at some point, Elvis leaves the building. Like, at some point, that sort of innovation spark leaves a company, right? Like, when the founders basically, you know, at some point punch out or retire. Like, at some point, even the most innovative company just kind of becomes a big, normal, boring company. So, it's still in business. It's like, you know, I would say it's a little bit like a neutron bomb. It's these things or something. It's like the building's still there. There's still people. The parking lot's still full of cars. It still has customers. But, like, it hasn't invented a new product in a decade, right? Mm -hmm. And so, like, you know, what even is that? And by the way, it has, like, a hundred times the number of employees it had when it used to develop products all the time. And so, like, what, you know, what's happened there? And so those companies kind of, you know, they're still important from a business standpoint, but they're no longer vital. They don't do the new things, and that's when the new startups show up. So, so anyway, so back to your question is like, yeah, it's basically, you know, sort of continuous turnover of people. Um, everybody is highly aware that a 22-year-old can show up at any moment and upend the entire thing, and that has happened repeatedly. So people are kind of very open to that possibility. It's still jarring when it happens because, you know, it's like, number one, the changes seem so weird in the beginning, and then number two, like 22-year-olds seem really young. <laughs> so... Um, you know, it's, it's still. What was uh, the it, last one of those? It's hard to process that. Well, I mean, we're going through it right now with AI. Like, it's it's the you know that's the big one right now. You know, this one's not so much twenty two year olds. This one's more people who have been toiling in research labs for you know decades without really anything to show for it, and their stuff just started to work. Um, and so you actually have a lot of like scientists who never thought they would be in business, who all of a sudden are like basically top entrepreneurs, and you know, kind of they're they're kind of emerging, blinking out of basement labs into the real world, kind of you know trying to now build companies, you know, so that's happening. But like, you know, the, I mean, the classic recent one, you know, social networking, you know, Mark Zuckerberg shows up, he's 22. You know, we, 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 had, a, uh, we had a party actually uh, when I was, I was on, I'm on his board and we had a party when he finally became old enough to rent a car, right? <laughs> It'd be a big deal on, on business trips, right? Um, Amazing. You know, as the CEO of this incredible new company. So yeah, there's a lot of turnover. I would say it's, and then I say, look, the other thing is, and this this is the uncomfortable part of the topic, I think, is uh, it's an elite it's an elite occupation. Like it, it really is. Uh, it's, it's still a small pool, even though the characters are changing. 
Yes. It's a small pool. It's a small pool. And, and, and every once in a while, you get somebody who just comes completely out of left field, who went to some college you've never heard of and came from some random country and doesn't have connectivity, and they just like show up and they're just really amazing. But well, that was you. That was me. That was me. Yes, there's yeah. not a lot. Not, yes, but uh, you know, I would say that you know the, the the more standard pattern is there's a small number of universities. You know, Stanford, MIT, Berkeley, a few others. There's a small number of kind of important companies at any point in time where young people are getting trained by you know by working there and kind of gaining the skills. You know, there's kind of there's it's actually like music. There, there are scenes, right? There's like you know there's social scenes. You know, there's there's these you know kind of you know loops of people who all know each other you know, are kind of coming up. Like whenever I read like interviews with like either comedians or musicians, it always turns out it was, you know, they, they were with all of the other people of their cohort at that time. And what they all kind of had in common is nobody was taking, nobody was taking any of them seriously, right? And so that, that, that same thing happens. There's also a small number of geographic locations. San Francisco Bay Area, you know, just ends up being the center of the world for a lot of this. Why is that? So San Francisco, uh, and, and when I say San Francisco, there's San Francisco, the city, which has its own idiosyncrasies, and then there's just the Bay Area generally. So a lot of it's just office parks. Well, so, so practically, it's where Stanford and Berkeley are, um, and it's where Facebook and Google and you know all these other companies are. And so it just kind of is already ground zero, and so there's a natural kind of continuation thing that takes place. And then there's also a long history to it, which is uh, Silicon Valley really started in like the 1920s, 1930s, even with technologies before the computer. So it's, it's, it's running on like 100 years of what you might call a network effect, where basically meaning the next really bright person who's technical, technologically oriented is more likely to come to the place where all the other smart people are than to go anywhere else. So there's like a positive feedback loop that kind of just keeps spinning. And then, quite honestly, I think there's just something really, I mean, look, California has its problems, um, and they are profound, but there's something magical about California. There has been something magical, magical about California that predates the entertainment industry, that predates, um, you know, the tech industry, and it's basically the California is the frontier. And the same mentality that led to the original settlement, you know, California was the, the last, you know, sort of the furthest thing to the West that was settled. You know, it was sort of, you know, it was ungoverned for a long time. The, the, you, you had the gold, you know, the gold rush. The Wild West. Wild West, like... And, and, then, and then what happened was there was this just like selection process where if you were, you know, if you were oriented around status and respect, you wanted to succeed on the East Coast or in New York or Boston. Um, and if you wanted to go carve your own path uh, and create something new, uh, you went to, uh, you went to, you know, you went, you went basically as far away from the East Coast as you could get. And, that, you know, that's basically right, right, right where we sit right now. It, like it, you could call it like creative, um, you know, people experiment, right? Like they blaze new trails in like every way, including like how you live your life. You know, California is famously the home of, you know, thousands of cults, you know, have been developed here. I think it's actually no accident that California is sort of a, we call it sort of the stack, you know, California builds the technology uh, of, of dreams. And then we, we also, you know, the Hollywood and the entertainment business, you know, actually makes the dreams, right? And so it's like this sort of integrated dream factory. You know, is, is it ever really quite real? You know, Los Angeles is like famously a fake city, right? It was just like a desert. Um, and then they just basically, it was the Theranos of cities when it first got started. And they, they ran newspaper ads in East Coast cities with like drawings of like palm trees and like, you know, this lush paradise. And then people would buy plots of land and they come out here and it was just desert. And then they famously had to go get the water from the Central yeah. Valley. And that led to yeah. fly in palm trees. Yeah, but it turns out, and it turns out the palm trees are imports. Like, yeah. but it's right. It turns out palm trees, this is, this is actually one of my big breakthrough moments in understanding California, which is the palm trees are not native. Yeah. Like, it's just like this made up, you know, basically. Basically, the most iconic kind of thing for California, basically, is just like is like a made-up import. And so there's a, you know, there, there there's like an artificial. It's a very out- American idea, though. Yeah. Oh, very much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so and and well, I mean, here we sit in Shangri-La, right? Like par- paradise, right? You know, and, and you know, look, the weather, like the weather, like you know, if if you have a choice, right? Fundamentally, um, you know, of where you can live, you know, wouldn't it be nice to live someplace where it's like 70 and sunny every day? Like, wouldn't that be awesome? 
you know, it's the thing the Bay Area and LA kind of have in common, which is kind of the spirit of adventure. You know, the original movie industry people came out here for two reasons. One is they were fleeing Edison's patent uh, enforcers. He had patents on movie, movie uh, recording equipment projectors. And so he was sending the Pickertons to like break, your, break up your studio if you weren't paying him his patent fees. So they came 3,000 miles away to get out of the orbit of, you know, Eastern power. And then they also came here for the weather because they could film year round. And so, and that spirit, you know, that spirit exists. And it's actually an exciting time for that because for a long time, the sort of North and South, you know, California were sort of pretty starkly divided um, and you didn't have a lot of crossover. I mean, you know, a lot of your predecessors in, in music just never had any, viewed technology as a threat if they even thought about it at all and had very little interest in what was happening and, and quite frankly, vice versa. And there's just a lot more crossover. It turns out the Valley is more creative than we thought. It turns out LA, actually there's little people down here who are actually quite interested in tech and have done a lot, uh, have done a lot in tech. And so we, 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 there's a real magic, magic happening. Look, having said that, California also has all the downsides, and, and, and Silicon Valley also has all the downsides of a place where basically people are making up dreams from scratch. You know, there's, there's, there are dystopian elements to it, right? Like, is San Francisco a real city? Is always kind of an interesting question, because, like, you know, they no longer arrest criminals. <laughs> How's it working? Right, like, you might just get, like, stabbed and killed walking down the street, but... A friend of mine got a job working for actually OpenAI, and he he uh, he moved to be uh, close to the office, and he got an, he got an apartment a block away, and he, they're they're in the mission in San Francisco, which is sort of famously the the, home, the hub of AI, but also just like incredibly violent, and basically laws aren't enforced. Um, and he said, "Oh, I love living near the office." He's like, "I wake up in the morning, I go upstairs, I'm a block away from the office. The key is I run at full speed, as fast as I can, <laughs> from my apartment to the office, and then at night I run as fast as I can because I'm trying to not get like basically stabbed or killed on the way on the way in." And so it's got both of those, you know, the, the, the drug thing, you know, has always been, you know, a big deal. You know, hallucinogens are like a big thing, you know, up north. And, you know, it's, it's, it's the good and the bad. They're, they're opening people's consciousness and horizons. And, you know, there's a cultural creativity flowering thing that's happening, just like it happened in the 60s and 70s. But there's also the downside, which is you see people whose lives are, you know, getting wrecked by drugs. And so it's also got that side of it. And so it, it's got this like very organic, it's just like this perpetual cycle of cultural creation people designing their lives and then people, you know, building these, these, these products and these, you know, experiences that people all over the world kind of, you know, consider to be the best that, that, there, that there are. So it's a, it's a special place. It felt like in the early days of the Valley, and when I say the early days, I mean seven years ago, <laughs> um, the idea of move fast, break things, disruptor awards were really good things and you know the, apple had the think different campaign and something seems to have changed what do you uh, let me ask you what do you think has changed i don't know i don't understand it because it seemed like the whole tech revolution was about you could finally be yourself you could learn what you want on the internet you didn't have to get what was fed to you <laughs> you know i remember at one point in time twitter was called the free speech wing of the free speech party. That's right. So what changed? What changed? What changed? What changed? So let me start with, I actually think that, I actually think a lot of that is still there. Um, and, you know, it's not there as much in, the, in like the big companies, but like there, there is still an, an anarchic spirit in the startups. And so we meet with people every day who basically are just like, yeah, screw it. Like, I'm just going to like, I'm going to break a lot of glass, right? I'm going to just do something, you know, brand new. And people Isn't are, that necessary to make new things? I believe so, yes. I think so. Seems I, like. I believe it is. Let me say, I'm very much in favor of it. And we could talk about why, why that is. But yeah, it's obvious. That's how you do new things. Like, you have to. Um, like, look, look, the, the past will crush you, right, if, if you let it. But most cultures throughout time and most cultures in the world today, they're just, their thoughts are dominated by the past, right? And, and there's a good to that, right, which is they have cultural, they have continuity, right? They venerate their ancestors. They, you know, I mean, literally, like the natural form of human society is like literally ancestor worship, right? Like you just like, 
And, and look, there's a lot to that because like your ancestors like learned a lot and they, you know, try to pass it on to you through these kind of cultural transmission things, um, you know, started with like epic poetry and then made its way through to, you know, kind of all the, you know, books and stories that we have today about people in the past. But like, you know, most cultures are just like completely dominated by the past and they just don't do new things. And anybody who tries to do new things, there's this thing called right, tall poppy syndrome. You know, the tall poppy gets chopped off, right? And there's tall poppy syndrome in the West. There's tall, tall poppy syndrome in the East. You know, it's like this very natural kind of tribal tribal thing. And so, uh, you know, anybody who's really going to do something new is going to like upset the apple cart and it's going to make people upset. And then I would say technology is maybe even the most kind of advanced version of that or the most dramatic version, right? Which is like, you know, a transgressive piece of content, like a transgressive song or movie can really make people mad by suggesting that there's a better, you know, a different way to live. And that obviously can have a big effect. But tech does something, I think, even more than that, which is when tech, when, when something disruptive in tech changes, it doesn't just change tech, it also changes the sort of order of status and hierarchy of people, right? And, well, this is sort of the thing. So why, why, does, why does the media hate tech so much? And like, there's a lot of, you know, potential explanations for that. And, and one of them is just like, we cut the legs out from under the media business, right? Like we like basically obliterated, you know, like for newspapers, we like obliterated, you know, basically most of their advertising revenue, because most of that, you know, the people used to advertise in newspapers, now they just advertise online. And so there's like a big reordering, you know, to, well, actually in, in music this happened, right? You know, Napster file sharing, you know, cut the legs off from under the economic structure of the music industry that caused a massive turnover in who was running the music companies. And now there's a new generation of people who have figured out streaming and digital distribution. And, and so like there's been a complete reordering of status, you know, that, that's come from that. So I think that's a lot of that. Yeah. So look, I think you have to do that. I, I think there's a couple things. A couple other just broader things that have happened, you know, this one I'll kind of pin on us, which is just like, because the dog has caught the bus. Like a lot of us who've been in tech for a long time, it was always like, wow, what we're doing is actually really valuable and important and people don't understand it. And we have to tell them how valuable and important it is. And now it's like, oh, they actually get it. And now they're mad. Right. <laughs> like, right. We won. Right. The dog has got the bus. Like we, it, it, everybody gets it now. Everybody gets the tech is powerful and important. And now they're really upset about it. Right. Yeah. And so, so some or of now that they is, want, now they want to control it. And now they want to control it. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so the dog has got the bus, you know, it turns out the bus has its own opinions on where things should go. You know, the dog is going to get dragged behind the bus. And so there, there, there is some of that. Uh, look, the, the other thing that's happened that you, you know well, but the other thing that's happened is just, you know, look, the world, I think, really changed in 2016. And like why and how and, you know, how much of it was one guy and how much of it's a global phenomenon. You know, we sit here, you know, sitting, just sitting here today, a very Trump-like figure just won in the Netherlands, uh, you know, in this kind of huge surprise. You know, a Trump-like figure just won in Argentina, which is this kind of huge surprise. But, you know, the, the world, like the world as I experienced it in the United States, in the Silicon Valley, like it really changed in 2016. And a lot of people really got psychologically you know, altered, shattered, broken, <laughs> reformed, uh, kind of through that. And I, and I bring it up just because like tech got pulled into that shift, just like everything else has gotten pulled into that shift. And, and, and that's why I tell our, our founders a lot of the time who try to grapple with this stuff is just like, look, like we are, what we're doing is valuable and important, but we, we are not, we're not the bus, we are the dog. Like society writ large has energy and momentum of its own. And we are wrapped up in it, just like everybody else. Um, and so, you know, we, we are changing it in some ways, but also we, we are part of it. And we're, we're, getting, we're getting kind of dragged along with whatever the prevailing trends are. And so tech has become politicized, um, and I would say socially energized in a way that it never had been. I don't know, maybe, maybe this would be a big difference between, you know, this and, and, and L.A., which is maybe in, like, music and, and movies. You could say that, like, music and movies have always been intertwined with, like, politics you know, probably going back forever, but for sure going back to like the 60s, right? Kind of very deeply intertwined. Um, and, you know, music may, music music may have actually caused sort of political and social change in the 60s and 70s and 80s, but it was also reacting to it, right? And it was like a feedback loop. And I, and I think in tech for a long time, we didn't, we didn't have that. We were building like tools. 
you know, we were building like fun tools that people could play with and use, but they, you know, when, when they would get engaged in politics or whatever, they would put down our stuff and then they would go out in the street or, you know, go on TV or do whatever they would do. And now tech is integral to how society works. But even beyond tech, there was a time when big companies were focused on making the best product they could and having the best bottom line they could. Mm -hmm. And that was all they were focused on. Mm -hmm. They were focused on the business that they were running. Yeah. And it seems like somewhere along the way, the idea changed where now corporations whose obligation to their shareholders is to do what I just said, yeah. now feel like they have some moral imperative. Yeah. How did that happen? Yeah, so, um, you know, look, I should start by saying, for people who haven't really thought about this hard, um, you know, there, there is a, you didn't do this, but there's a misnomer that people apply to companies, which is they'll say, like, there's usually a criticism, they'll say companies are only focused on their shareholders, and they're only focused on making money, and they're legal, and those people sometimes say they're legally required to, like, optimize profits no matter what. Right, and they, and so and this is why they say companies are sort of going to be sort of intrinsically, you know, morally, you know, neutral or even evil because, like, if it makes sense to pollute or if it makes sense to like have horrible policies or whatever or to build products that deliberately break, so that people have to buy, you know, the new the new thing next year, like they're going to do all these evil things because they're optimizing for profits. It actually turns out there's actually no legal requirement for companies to purely optimize for profit. In fact, quite the opposite. You're supposed to optimize for kind of a long-term value. And you get to, management has like broad latitude to be able to kind of decide whether to engage in social issues, whether to like have different kinds of policies inside the company. You know, you're, you're perfectly protected legally as an executive of a company if you trade off short-term profits for some, you know, longer term, you know, just a brand value. Like we're just not, even though doing this thing would call, you know, we, we were thinking of starting a new whaling division and we were going to kill a bunch of whales and sell their meat. We could make money doing that. But we're going to decide not to do that because it would impair our brand. Like as a corporate executive, you're completely legally covered. Nobody will ever, will ever question that. And so... So corporate executives have always had a fair amount of latitude in terms of how they how they how they want to steer their, their their companies. Look, for a long time, you know, one is just like, look, business people were just you know focused on business. But but the other thing that happened was the the, the received wisdom that you got when you were trained up in corporate America. I would say between the '70s and the around 2016, and the way I was trained up was. You actually don't want to get involved in political and social issues because of the backlash. Like you're gonna make people mad, right? You're, you're, gonna, you're, you're gonna you're gonna summon the demon of you become involved in politics or social change. So politics and social change are gonna become involved in you, and so you're sort of inviting a level of backlash that very well might destroy you. That was something Michael Jordan famously said early on when they were asked they asked him about politics. He said, "I want everyone to buy my sneakers." That was his answer about right. what his political affiliations right. were. Right. And, you know, is that a capitalist statement? In part. But is that also a social and political and moral statement, which is, look, I don't want to be a divisive figure, right? I, I don't want to have some kids love me and other kids hate me, yeah. right? Because I'm on the wrong side of some divide, right? And so, yeah, so to your point, like, I think that was, that was very common. Look, I think there's this, I don't know, this, this vortex opened up and, you know, a, a very large number of executives got, felt very guilty about some set of social and political things. There was tremendous peer pressure that developed, um, uh, you know, to be able to, you know, to stand up on things. Uh, employee bases changed. The millennials, in particular, showed up in the workforce with a lot more, you know, sort of demands on their employers. I mean, even my like socially activated, like older, you know, friends, you know, who in business, like th even they are shocked that the young employees show up, kind of so fired up and so demanding that the, the companies, you know, take take all these different positions. And so that that happened, and then. You know, look, I think some people think they can differentiate. You know, I think some people, I saw some companies have deliberately decided that they'd rather have half the market love them and half the market hate them than have nobody care. And so I think maybe that's, you know, you know, just you might say hypothetically at Nike, for example, actually might be quite happy if liberals buy twice as many shoes and conservatives don't buy any shoes. And, you know, maybe that, that works. And then 
quite honestly, I think people are drunk. Um, I think they're drunk on sanctimony and, and they're drunk on politics and they're drunk on feeling powerful and they're drunk on, you know, grandstanding. Um, and I think it's like a chemical, you know, it's like a chemical thing. It's, it's a drug and it's very easy to get hooked on that drug. It feels great, right? And then, you know, people on your side are like praising you and talking about how wonderful you are. And, and you, you even say it also probably to some extent it feels good to be hated, right? Because it's like, wow, I'm really important. All these people hate me. They're all mad at me. Like I'm in the mix, like, right. I'm in the fight. Like I'm really making a difference. Like people That's are getting... unbelievable. And so I, I think a lot of it is just like, I think a lot of it is just this emotional thing. It's like a, it's like a heroin, uh, you know, kind of thing. And I think there's a hangover from it. I think actually a lot of, you know, a bunch of companies have that hangover right now. A bunch of companies have been damaged very badly by this. Um, and they have, you know, severe internal problems. I mean, look, there, there are big companies where the CEO no longer runs the company. Like the company is run by the mob. Right. I mean, and just the, the employee base can just like freak out and like threaten to protest or threaten to quit. And like the CEO just rolls over every single time. And so like, you know, at some point, like, what is that? Right. Is that a, you know, is that a company or is that like a social movement, you know, wearing, wearing the skin suit of a, of, of a company? So, you know, I would say optimistically, you might say this was a moment in time phenomenon and that, you know, mean reversion will kick in. And then you might also say, you know, no, look, like we just live in a different world now. We live in a different kind of culture. We have a different kind of media you know, this is never going back. And I, I think it's related, to, it's very much related to the question of like, do politicians quote unquote become normal again or do they actually become kind of stranger and stranger, more and more unusual? I think probably things just get weirder. I think so too. I think it'd be hard to go back because if you see now when you look at the politics of the old days, it was a very lawyerly, it felt less connected to the people. It felt like a, a different elite class. Yeah. And now it feels more like whether it's uh, AOC or MTG, yeah. it feels like the people. Yeah. Well, and by the way, just the fact you can name them, right? Like yeah. the fact you can name them, the fact that they, those two, like they already have like iconic, you know, three letter, you know, names, right? Mm -hmm. It's like they're right up there now with MLK. Like how, how did that happen? Right. The fact that they, like, if you poll, if you did like unaided surveys, like they would pop up, you know, those are probably, you know, those, those two people might be, you know, other than, other than Trump, like and, and Biden, those might be the top respective, you know, Democrat, Republican today for unaided awareness. Or, you know, the, if you talk to institutionalists in D.C., they, they're very frustrated by this because they view it as like, OK, the people who are purely focused on media presence are getting all the, you know, they're getting they're, they're basically getting lined up to be future presidential nominees, whereas the people focused on substance are nobody knows who they are. And it's kind of like, OK, maybe that's just the world. Right. Mm -hmm. And maybe if you're going to be a politician, that's the world you have to live in and you have to be willing to you have to you have to have a strategy on that. And maybe if you're in business, this is just the world you live in and you have to, you know, be. You know, just, not, I don't know, pick on people, but, you know, look, Disney, Disney went through a version of this with their, you know, with, uh, with Bob Chappick, who, who, I, who I know and like, um, you know, where, you know, he tried very hard to keep them out of politics. You know, first thing he did when he came in was I said, you know, we're, we're staying out of politics. We want everybody to buy the sneakers. And like the company just was not having it. And Bob Iger has come back and he very much doesn't have that view. He's, you know, he's, he's keeping them in all these things. And, you know, who had the right strategy? I don't know. And, you know, but it's, it's going to tilt one way or the other. And so I think there's a lot to that. Um, I, I also think, look, I think that, I'm not a big fan. I think there's a lot of simplistic kind of accusations that like social media is ruining everything or the internet's ruining everything. And I don't like, I think those are generally kind of simplistic uh, and sort of incorrect things. But, you know, look, there is no question that media forms society. So, you know, society forms media, media forms society. You know, McLuhan, you know, wrote extensively and work that holds up incredibly well about, you know, the role that media takes in shaping culture. 
And look, we, we live in a different media landscape now. And, and again, we're the dog that caught the bus. Like, we made it. <laughs> we, we invented all this stuff. But like, you know, you might say, like a critique I might apply to my own, my own thinking on this is like, what did you think would happen when you connected everybody together into like a single global media sphere, right? Uh, uh, McLuhan used the term the global village. And, and what people forget about the term the global village is he wasn't saying that was good. What he was saying is basically the entire globe is going to revert to the behaviors of a village. And the behaviors of a village are very different than the behaviors of a city. The behaviors of a village, you know, of a city are like cosmopolitan and open-minded and like embracing of new ideas and so forth. The, the, the values of a village are like very narrow-minded and moralistic and sharp. And, they, you know, villages like ostracize people, you know, for slight differences in belief. And everybody's watching everybody all the time and everybody's super critical, right? And so, you know, we actually invented the global village. Everybody's acting like a villager now. You know, McLuhan would say, yeah, no kidding. Like, you know, great job, guys. Yeah, the, the great benefit of the villages in the past was that you'd go to another village and they'd have their whole own way of doing it. That's right. And if it's a global village, right, the, your it's biodiversity like, of villages is gone. Yeah, it just gets all turns into the same. The same thing. And so, I, look, I think we've been, I think this is a big problem. I think this this, this be my interpretation of the drunk drunk on politics thing, which is just like we became drunk on being sort of dom domineering members of a global village. They thought they were, Became in a, you know both yeah, both company CEOs, but also a lot of activists you know became sort of convinced that they were in a position to kind of steer the totality of human civilization and society, you know through by using these technologies. You know, look, I think there's some truth to that. So like we've all gotten basically wrapped up in a collective you know single collective psychodrama. Yeah. But look, like I also don't think like eight billion people want to be wrapped up in a single collective like psychodrama. And I mean, if anything, there's just like at some point adrenal fatigue. Like it's just at some point it's just tiring to be like onto the next like howling outrage, right? Like, like how many of these, how many of these can you actually go through? It's actually even funny sitting here today is like there's still people trying to push like the same buttons they were pushing in 2020. They'll attack companies or whatever. And, and in 2020, you know, some accusation will be leveled on something race or whatever related. And, you know, in 2020, it would have led to a huge crisis. And today, you know, people are pushing the button and like just nothing's happening. And it's just because like people, you know, it's just like the, eight, the 80th time you're you're going through a race panic. The boy who cried wolf. The boy who cried wolf. And we're, we're and it's becoming so clear that so much of that is like astroturfed and is cynical manipulation ploys and like using emotional guilt, you know, to try to manipulate people to do what you want. Yeah. And people trying to like, you know, make money by selling their, you know, newsletter or whatever it is where they're, you know, talking about how evil everybody. At some point, it's just like, all right, I got the message. Okay, I guess we're all evil. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Like, I'm tired of feeling bad all the time. And, and then, by the way, at some point, you get the actual full-on backlash, right? Because the, the other thing the internet does is it's the opposite of a global village. It also makes outlying ideas much more accessible. And so if you've had it with a prevailing view on something, the internet is the best medium you've ever had to be able to go basically find the other side. Um, and so you, you find, like... I think there is, it's like there's a, there's a power law curve, like a, this thing where there's like a small number of like global village, like dominant ideologies that basically suck people in at sort of mass numbers. But then there's also this long tail thing where there's also like a thousand, you know, there's a thousand like entrepreneurial efforts to have new kinds of cultures, new kinds of art forms, new kinds of creativity. And, and those have always existed, but they've always been fragmented and scattered. And it's always been hard to like find your little micro, you know, kind of tribe of the things that are interested in what you're interested in, especially if you don't live in the same, you know, in the same place. And the internet now makes it possible to find, you know, the alternate view of basically anything. And it makes it easy to find the other people who like that alternate view. Mm -hmm. And so you have like... Same with products like Etsy, you know, it's fun to go to Etsy instead of Amazon. It's just right. a different experience. Right. Right. And, and by the way, you can pick and choose, right? As a consumer, that's a great Absolutely. example. You can pick and choose where you can, you know, you can buy 80% of your stuff on Amazon because you say, uh, you know, it's a garbage bin. I just don't care that much versus like your water bottle. You like, you want something handcrafted, right? Um, yeah. And so... The, the, the choice side of it is there um, and is really being blown out. And I, I just, 
Yeah, I, I, I continue to have a lot of faith in people, and I think people don't want to, I, I don't think people want to live in a vortex of just uniformity and, you know, sort of mutual shaming forever. I think that at some point people want to do different and new things, and I, I think that the internet also makes that possible. Do you think that big tech companies are too big to fail? Mm -mm. So no. could something come and replace Google for search? Yeah. Well, so this is the so let me let me start with the the goal of every company is to become too big to fail. The goal of every company is to become a monopoly. Uh, the goal of every company at some point is to get the government to give them monopoly status and protect them. And so there's this uh, this this term uh, regulatory capture. So uh, big companies hire all these lobbyists, and at some point, what they're trying to do basically is they're trying to write laws and then get their own people into key positions at regulatory agencies so that the government basically becomes their over you know basically their their overseer and their protector. To prevent people from. To, growing to compete. Yes, to prevent people like us from backing founders like we back who are going to develop the disruptive thing that's going to ultimately hollow, hollow them out. And so, and by the way, it's, it's, this is a cycle. Like all of our companies grow up and they want to do that too, right? So this is a cycle, right? Yeah. So in this one, we're both the dog and the bus, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Venture capital funded Google. Google is now trying to do what I just described. They're, they have this active effort underway to try to get government regulatory protection. And then we, have, we are back in the next generation of companies that are trying to basically screw that up. I mean, look, Google, this is very public right now. Google's going through exactly the, the process you just described uh, right now with, with search, which is, does, does AI make search irrelevant, right? Like, that, does it make any sense to go search and click on links if you just have an AI and, you know, ChatGPT that can just give you the answers? And that's a, that's a very big product question for Google. Um, and then there's also a very big revenue question in there, which is 99% of Google's revenue comes from ads. The ads are these keyword ads on search results. You know, does, does that happen in, you know, if, if the user's not clicking on links, are they clicking on ads? And so, will, you know, will there be will there, will there be ads in AI, or or even if there are ads in AI, will will, they, will those ads work the same and what way? And you, what's your prediction? Like, how do you see that playing out? Yeah, look, so so, and I would say, look, Google was in this interesting position where number one, they invented a lot of these AI technologies, right? And so the key breakthrough for ChatGPT actually happened at Google in 2017. In classic big company form, they sat on it. They didn't they didn't use it. If you talk to people in Google, they will tell you that uh, Google could have had GPT, ChatGPT4 the way you have it today. They could have had it in 2019 had they stayed, had they been focused on it, but they, they decided not to do it. So there's this this is like a, a classic big company thing. Now now they've they've woken up. Now they they feel threatened. They, they understand everything I just said, and so they've got this internal effort called Gemini, and they're going to try to leapfrog ChatGPT. And they Sergey Brin, one of the founders, has come back to work on that. And, they, but how will it work for the ad model? That is a, that is an open question. That is a very open question. I would I would give two assumptions. My assumption is number one, yes, there will be a transition from search and ten blue links with ads. There will be a transition from that to just ask a question, get an answer. And I think that transition is underway right now. I think Google's gonna they're already starting to launch their own version of that. So like when you do Google searches now, and a lot of those searches at the beginning, they'll actually just try to give you the answer. They're trying to lean into that. So there's that. Look on the, on the ad side. The argument, for, the argument for ads and AI is actually quite similar for the argument for ads and search, which is basically like if you're searching, like, I don't know, if you're searching, where should I go on vacation, right? And it's like, well, you know, how about this beach, you know, in Thailand? It's like, okay, well, the very natural next thing to do would be I'm going to click and buy a ticket um, and I'm going to click and buy a hotel reservation, right? And so presumably people are going to be, um, you know, talking to the AI about things that they ultimately want to buy. And then there will be an opportunity in there to actually be helpful to actually have an ad that actually makes it possible to do the thing that you're, you're talking about. It seems like if you're going to something for information, if they have an interest in selling you a particular thing, that undermines their ability to give you the best information. Yeah. So the, the, the history on here is that the search ads was actually not invented by Google. It was actually invented by a different company in the 90s. This guy, Bill Gross, actually down here in LA, um, I, call, I think it was called goto.com at the time. 
And they were the first company that rolled out uh, a, search, a search engine where there were ads, in, you know, there were sort of ads in between the links. And, and it was actually viewed out of the gate as like unethical for that reason. And it was like, oh, this is bad because it biases, it biases the results. And, and by the way, there's, you know, look, there's, there's some truth to what you're saying. Like there's a, now there's a commercial incentive. Well, it sounds, I mean, to, I can't imagine a version where it, it's not 100% true. Well, but no, no, here's why it's not 100% true, because yeah. there's utility value to it, right? Like if but the, you don't know. You don't, if, if you're, because of bias, we don't know that. Yeah, but at some point you want to buy something, right? Like, yeah, but how do you know what to buy if the thing that you're trusting to give you the information is trying to sell you one of many? That's a problem. Well, so here's the other thing that happens, and you might view this as making the situation better or worse. Uh, it, it's, they don't sell these ads on fixed price basis, they're auctions. Ads are priced on auctions. And so the ad that you actually see is the guy who's willing to pay the most to, to, to present the ad. So it's not based on the best service. It's not based on the best service, but it's also not just a lowest common denominator thing either. It's the person who can justify paying the most for the ad. And it, and it turns out there are a lot of product categories where the guy who can pay the most for the ad has the best product. That's a real stretch. That feels like a real stretch. Well, Mercedes spends a lot more money on the, the, that form of advertising and marketing that it does to sell who a says car. That's the, who says that's the best product? Then Toyota does. <laughs> but generally speaking, in the world, the argument goes, the better the product, the more expensive the product, the more the company's going to spend on advertising it. Do you believe that? I think, there's the, I think there is a point to it, generally speaking. I'm not saying can you argue it. Do you believe that? Well, look, a lot of times when I'm looking, okay, I'll give you something. A yeah. lot of times when I'm looking for something and I'm just like, I just want to like buy something and I don't want to spend the next week trying to like research it and navigate it, trying to correct for all the biases and I just like need the thing. It's like a pretty good proxy. It's like, okay, if they're willing to spend, you know, $40 to get this thing in front of me, click. Right? I wonder about that. Because That's the guy, because if they weren't, because the, the key is self-interest. Like if they weren't making money with the $40, then they wouldn't be spending the $40. Like they spent the $40 even before they knew whether I was going to buy it. And so it, it's costing the advertiser real money to run the ad. And so there's some proxy there for they have a healthy, there's it just some, means they may be the best funded. It may be, yes. So there are moments, there are times, there are times when the categories get overfunded. But like, but there are, there are most businesses, over, this is where self-interest kicks in and helps you, which is most businesses need to make money over time. To do that, they need to calibrate how much money they spend on marketing versus everything else. And if they can, over time, if they can afford to spend money on marketing, they probably have a pretty good product because a lot of people are probably buying it. Right, and if they don't, they don't. And so, right. So, so the the look on your face is the look that everybody had in the '90s when this idea first rolled out, and it was exactly this argument. It turned out it worked. Like it. it well, it it worked in that people have gone along with it. Yes, they have. People have given up the search for the good thing in exchange for the convenience of somebody wants to sell me this, and they're telling me what to buy. Well, yeah, okay, so here would be a question. Um, are people more or less likely to buy the better version of the product out of all the choices today than they were before the internet? Depends on the person. Yeah, okay. But like a lot of people, I, it was a part of this, there's also just a, a fading of memory thing that I think that happens, which is pre the internet, it was actually really hard to get any information on products. That's true. Right, like, and so like, you know, God help you, like try to find like, you know, well, this is a big issue in the car industry for a long time. It's like, you know, some cars were just like more, much more fundamentally prone to break down than other cars, but it was actually really hard to figure that out. Yeah. And it was hard to aggregate. It was hard to either have an authoritative voice that would tell you, or it was hard to actually have an environment where people could tell each other, uh, right? And so a lot of people, consumer reports. Consumer how reports. They used to do it. Look, they, they built. They, they built a big business. They built a big business because of that, right? Mm -hmm. And there was a certain. As I'm sure you remember this. There was a certain kind of consumer who was glued to consumer reports and used it as the Bible for everything they bought. But there were a lot of people who didn't, because there's, there's a lot of people who just have other things going on in their lives. And so, 
you know, I think on balance, the internet has made it so the better products have done better relative to worse products. I mean, there's just, there's basic examples, which is, remember when you used to mail order, you used to mail order things? Yeah. Wait four to six weeks for delivery? Yeah, and right? you had no idea what you were going to get. Right, Exa yeah, exactly. And there was some drawing and some catalog somewhere, and whether yeah. that was even the product, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, today, like, everything's overnight. Like, there's, like, reviews and ratings. And, like, and again, is it perfect? Like, are there, like, fake reviews? No, it's definitely better. And you can order several different options and you can see the one that works for you and everyone ex understands because it's mail order things get sent back i definitely prefer it now that's a different question though than the uh, the corruption built into the yes. system yeah there's some disconnect <laughs> uh, look having said that google uh, again i'll defend google's honor just one, one more step which is i google doesn't care google's running an auction um yeah. they're, they're they're optimizing on price of, of what the person's willing to pay to put the ad in front of you. So they're, they're not, to, to my knowledge, they're not putting their thumb on the scale. Like they're not basically saying we're going to rig this. Like Amazon is. Well, so <laughs> this, this Amazon, so Amazon's in an interesting spot. Are Amazon ads surfacing the high quality products? No, not, not even the ads. Amazon, if you're looking for a whatever, often the first recommended choice from Amazon is the one that Amazon makes. And that's also true. Yes, exactly. And the FD, there's a government investigation now where the, you know, the FTC is trying to basically force them to stop doing that. Is that true? Yeah, for that reason. That's interesting. I, mean, I don't know whether what, what will happen with that case, but they're trying to. So, so yeah, look, like, but so take all of your points. Uh, you know, I think well, well made. Um, you know, look, th this is all going to get rethought in the AI world, right? So, you know, look, should the AI have a view? You know, should the AI have opinions of product quality the way it has opinions on everything else? Well, so Elon, this is also happening in social media, right? So Elon has this thing now, community notes, right, for, for X, where it, you know, has this thing. And it's this, what, is, what is it and how does it work? Okay, so it's this very clever thing. So all these social media companies, these social media companies all used to be free speech, you know, free, free speech wing of the free speech party. And then it just turned out, like, a lot of people said a lot of things that made people mad. And so these, these companies all created what they called trust and safety groups. And, of course, that is, like, a super Orwellian terms. It means you can't trust them at all, and they're totally unsafe. <laughs> right? But, <laughs> right? And so what you ended up with in the trust and safety groups was just basically, oh, you had some well-meaning people, and then you had a lot of people who were in there to basically put their thumb on the scale. And this really kicked in around politics where, you know, they would have just obviously different, um, you know, standards for, you know, candidates from different political parties that everybody could kind of see it in plain sight. And so that, that, that model never worked very well. And so uh, the, the, the people at Twitter, and I think this actually started before Elon got there, but he, but he embraced it when he got there. Uh, they came up with this new idea called community notes. And the idea of community notes is that anybody that there's there's people there are people who have the button to be able to submit a community note, which then there's a way that you kind of apply and you become one of those people. Uh, it's like being a Wikipedia editor or something like that, right? And so there are certain people who can propose community notes, but a community note does not get approved and used unless people who have a history of disagreeing agree on it. So, for example, I we we you, we we see a statement, somebody says something, and it's just like you know it's wrong. You and I are two community note editors. We have a history of political disagreements. We have a history of conflict where we really don't see eye to eye on things. But then this time we see eye to eye. I see. Right? And then that's the one, that's the note that gets posted. Right? Um, and so I would say it's been working shockingly well. Like, wow. uh, like it's not, and by the way, it's not perfect because it no. still goes wrong and you, there are people try to trick the system. But it's by far the best system that I've seen that actually works. So he's done this very clever thing, interesting thing, where you can now do community notes on ads. Right. On ads. On ads. Interesting. <laughs> so, so if somebody runs an ad that makes false claims, right, or exaggerates something, it can get community noted. And so the platform itself is like, oh, actually, the claim in that ad is actually not correct. Here is the actual truth, and here are the links for the truth. And, you know, you can, even, you can imagine the reaction of the advertisers. I mean, right, you know, they're just like absolutely furious every time this happens. But, it, it's, it, but he's running this experiment basically saying, is the faith and trust of the user base, you know, being improved by the fact that the community notes can actually be legitimately fact-checked, or the, the ads can be fact-checked? 
is the value of that greater than the lost value of the advertisers who get alienated? And, and by the way, he would say the advertisers who get alienated by that are probably the worst advertisers anyway. For sure. Because there, there's some issue. It's surfacing. Yeah. You, you, right. If you're making a product right. and if people have a problem with it, right. if you're the maker of it, you want to know that. If you're good, right. If you're honest. Right. Absolutely. That's right. Absolutely. And are, right, yeah, yeah. If you want to improve your product to yes. always be the best it yeah. could be, of course you would yeah. want to know that. And if you don't, maybe you should not be advertising. Exactly. Right. Maybe you should not be allowed to advertise. And so like, I, th I think that's a very clever experiment. And I, I think, and I think there's a lot more of this kind of thing. There's, there's a lot more experiments like this people can, can run. Um, I think in the next 20 or 30 years, we'll figure out actually a lot. You know, th this is all around trying to make the global village work better. Like this is how to get basically 8 billion people to kind of share a mind space and not want to kill each other. And you know, this, 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 this is the kind of technique that I think you can start to figure out. Can a company grow too fast? Oh yeah, for sure. Tell yeah. me about it. Yeah, very common, uh, very common. Uh, yeah, well, so especially when, when either the revenue just starts to pour in or um, when they raise too much money. And, and the, the basic mechanic is very straightforward, which is just, um, you know, it, 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 you have a problem. If the answer is you can always hire somebody to fix the problem, then that's what you'll always do because it's the easiest thing to do, right? And just, I'll just go hire another engineer and they'll just go do that. The, the problem is, it's just like, it, it's like any human organization, like organizations behave very differently when they're large versus when they're small. And there are, you know, big issues involved in running large organizations that are, you know, very complicated and it's very easy to run them badly. And it's very easy that, I use the metaphor of Elvis leaving the building, like it's very easy for Elvis to leave the building, company grows too fast, the good people quit, the bad people stay. We have another thing we call the law of crappy people, um, which is in any organization, so organizations have levels, you know, so there's like levels of you know, promotion levels, you know, level one through eight or whatever. Uh, and there's always an internal process to try to figure out how, you know, when people should get promoted. And so the law of crappy, crappy people says that the quality of any level in the company will degrade to the uh, worst person at that level. Right. And it's, it's a very natural human thing, which is just like, well, I want to get promoted to level three. And um, like, I know I'm better than, you know, that other guy who just got promoted. Right. And so whoever is the worst person at that level now sets the bar. And so basically, as companies grow, basically performance tends to collapse, you know, kind of level by level. Uh, you know, meetings, you know, communication overhead overwhelms everything. People are just sitting in meetings all day. You know, or, or another thing that happens is you, you hire too many people from another culture. Uh, so you think you have your unique culture and then you hire 300 people from Google and you discover all of a sudden that you're Google, you know, all over again, but without their business, just with all their problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that's, I would say that's, uh, this, this is part of the, um, more companies die of uh, indigestion than starvation. <laughs> Uh, right? Because starvation is no fun, but starvation is highly motivating, right? If yeah. you don't have any money and you only have a few people, you have to be smart. Yeah. If you are flush with cash, you can, sp you can try to spend your way out of all your problems, you know? And, and you, you could say there's a metaphor here for individual lives, right? Which is like a lot of people get into a lot of trouble. Yeah, I right. think that's why I was asking about if people mainly came to you for money, because it seems like money is not at the highest level of what it takes to make great things. It's a piece of the puzzle, yeah. but it's not the main piece of the puzzle, I don't think. Yeah. Or yeah. it hasn't been in my experience, I'll say. It has been, that's right. And yeah, and I think that uh, we, we find ourselves, in, and people don't believe this, but we find ourselves in practice often trying to get our companies to not raise as much money as they can, you know, kind of down, down the road. Yeah, look, we just tell them, like, look, it's just or bloat, like, just simply bloat. Like, you know, look, you, you know how to run this company of 50 people. Everybody feels great. You just need to, like, close your eyes and imagine that, like, that's not how your day is going. Your day is yeah. going organizing, you know, meetings on calendars and cross And if you can grow the company with the 50, yeah. why would you hire more? Yeah, yeah. Now, usually you do. So, so there are some companies, there are a small number of companies that become big and important with very small numbers of people. And there are these kind of very magical success give me, cases. Give me an example. So the great one was Minecraft. So Minecraft at the time that it sold was I think three people total. Wow. 
um, which was and what did it sell for? Remarkable. I don't know, a billion and a half, two billion, billion or something. And it, but it was this giant global phenomenon. And you know, now it's you know, it's owned by Microsoft, and now there's a lot more than three people working on it. But it's you know, it's 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 an amazing it's an amazing thing. I mean, look, Bitcoin was like one guy. Um, you know, it's worth like what eight hundred billion dollars today or something. Like so, there was that. Um, you know, WhatsApp uh, when they sold it to Facebook, it was fifty people. Instagram when they sold it to Facebook was I think eleven people. So you have these, yeah, you, you have these kind of very kind of special things. Uh, Midjourney is one guy plus basically a bunch of contractors. It's this, you know, this huge kind of force now in art, AI. So you have these kind of very special things. It's just, it, they do at some point, like this is, the, the, this is the pressure on the other side. Like at some point, there are things that are just kind of obvious that these things should do that they just don't do. Understood. Like Minecraft was like a great, you know, kind of viral phenomenon, but it really should be what Microsoft's turning into today. It should be like an entire world and there should be, it should be like, you should be able to use it for like education and it should, it should run on all these different platforms and it should have all these different, you know, kinds of all this new content and, you know, it should be this thing that people can be in for 20 years. And, and so, you know, it's much like deeper and richer and more built out than it was. Mm. You know, same thing, what's, WhatsApp, what, this is what's happening at, at Meta right now with WhatsApp. WhatsApp is, you know, very widely used. It's one of the main ways that small businesses communicate with their customers. But there's no capability, there's been historically no capability inside WhatsApp for a small business to be able to, like, maintain a customer database or whatever inside WhatsApp, which is, like, a very obvious thing, like for a restaurant or something. And so, you know, there are things like that that make sense to add that are actually valuable to the users um, that just require more people. So yeah, there, there's there's pressure on the other side to grow. It's, it's just there, there's some yeah there's some theoretically optimal rate of growth of, of, of heads, and it's very easy to, it's yeah it's one of those things where nobody ever quite gets it right. <laughs> well, and then look the other thing that happens is the the economic cycle. Like you you know these companies all tend to overhire during an economic boom, mm-hmm. you know, and then there, at some point there's a crash and there's a rationalization, and you kind of wish you always wish that you didn't have to go through that because it, it's bad to do layoffs, but it's very hard to just keep that. It's very hard to um, over time have a sustainable model where you don't make mistakes. How did you meet uh, your partner, Ben? Yeah, so I met Ben. We were actually trying to staff up at our, my first company, Netscape, uh, in 1994. Yeah, we were desperately, we, we had the tiger by the tail. Was the, the internet was going to take off, and we knew it. And so we had to kind of get, get in position. And so we were trying to hire in good people. And uh, he was one of the first people who came in from an existing successful software company to join us. And, you know, he was a young guy. Came in as what's called a product manager, so somebody who kind of orchestrates orchestrates things. Um, and then very quickly, it just became clear that he was one of the sort of sharpest young you know people we had. And so we promoted him you know very rapidly over the course of the next few years. And I, I ended up working very closely with him. And I always thought, had we stayed, we we sold our company in 1998, four years in, but um, just an eternity that was it turned out it was only four years. Um, if we had stayed independent, I think he would have ended up being the CEO. He was on track to do that. Uh-huh. So I spent a lot of time with him, and we got to know each other really well. Um, and then, so it, just, it sort of became obvious after we sold our company. I wanted to start a company, and so it became obvious he would be the right person to do it with. Is it as much a friendship as it is a partnership? There's an old thing around founding teams and, and just generally, which is what it, it's a, a friendship from a business relationship works better than a, a business relationship from a friendship. Like when two people who are personal friends going to business together, it often destroys the friendship. Whereas people who have a business relationship first and really learn to trust each other in business can become very good friends. And so for us, it's been that latter. It was business first and then it's become, you know, become a very deep friendship. Yeah, and we, you know, we, we look, we talk all the time and we, we get along great and we, we, you know, we're, we're, we're always, you know, teasing each other and it's, it's all, it's all good. Having said that, it's now almost 30 years. Um, wow. uh, and so, uh, there also is a, um, old married couple, you know, kind of, kind of aspect to it. Right. Yeah. And some of that is, um, 
you know, we can finish each other's senses and, you know, some of that as we get on each other's nerves. Um, <laughs> so we, we still argue all the time. That's and interesting. So, what, um, what would be something you would argue about? Oh, just constant, constant arguments. I mean, about basically everything. Um, well, it's, it's a big, it's a, it's a, you know, it's obviously a big benefit of a partnership is you have somebody you can actually talk to, who you trust, who can actually tell you things that when you're getting things wrong. So we argue about, you know, for the biggest argument's always around people, you know, is this person good or not? You know, should we, you know, should we promote this person? Should we fire this mm-hmm. person? You know, some of that's around our firm. A lot of that's around the companies we work with. You know, he, he works with a lot of our CEOs. He's kind of our, he's our, among other things, he's like our management guru. So he's, he's the guy who basically works with all the sort of most, you know, high potential CEOs to help them kind of develop. And so he develops kind of he very- wrote, He wrote the book on it. He wrote the book on it, exactly. The hard thing about hard things. It, but it's a consequence, like he's very, you know, he's legitimately very opinionated about, about people, you know, kind of coming out of that. I would say he's more focused on culture He's extremely focused on the culture of the company that a CEO is developing. And he applies that in our firm, but he also applies that to the CEOs that he works with. And so he really wants to understand, when he's evaluating a founder, he really wants to understand what culture that person's building inside their company. I'm a little bit more open to variations. Uh, (laughs) um, I'm a little bit, like, I'm more open to, like, what he might call recklessness uh, or chaos um, or, you know, original thinking that maybe doesn't work and might blow up in your face. And so I'm always a little bit more on the side of, you know, maybe we should like, you know. Would you say you're more of a risk taker than he is? I would say it's different kinds of risks. I think we're pretty similar in aggregate. It's different kinds of risks. Here's, I'd be curious whether actually he would agree with this, is I think he thinks, and I think he's right, but I think he thinks there are kind of timeless ways to build great cultures. Like leadership is not a new idea, right? Mm -hmm. It's something that has existed for a long time, cultures. Mm His second book is actually on culture, right? And he goes through, he talks about like Genghis Khan and the Mongols, and he talks about like, you know, the code of the Bushido and the samurai and, you know, kind of these, these cultures. Um, and he's, he's very into that kind of thing. And so he draws a lot of historical examples for cultures. And he's like, look, these are these continuous threads of like, what does it mean to have people trust you to be able to bond together into a team, right? All, all these things. The other side of it is, you know, look, people who come up with new ideas often have new ideas on everything. And so a lot of the people who have new ideas on like technology also have new ideas on like management and culture and how to be a CEO and how to structure a company. And do we really need all these meetings? And can we just run everything on video conference? And do we even need to have those? Or can we just do everything on Slack? Right? And so they'll, they'll, a lot of these founders will have these very creative original ideas on how to actually run their companies. And I would say, you know, most of the time his speech to them would be stop, you know, focus your creativity in the area that you actually understand, which is building products or designing things. And then just get good at running the company the way the companies have been run for hundreds of years. Like don't try to innovate on everything. And I would say he's usually right on that. Usually those experiments end in disaster. You know, that said, every once in a while they don't. And every once in a while there's a totally new approach. And, you know, it's just a case study of this right now is, is Elon, you know, Elon, you know, we, we work with Elon. On, I've known Elon for a long time, but we, we've, we've not, we, did, we were, Tesla and SpaceX predated us as a venture firm. So, um, but we're involved in his, his Twitter, you know, kind of acquisition. And like, Elon has a completely different way of running companies. <laughs> and, you know, it, you know, you can read about this, you know, press, the press has covered this at length, right? Like it is a much more blunt chaotic, you know, hair trigger, you know, direct engagement way. He is very quick to fire people. He's extremely aggressive. Uh, he gets micromanaged, you know, he micromanages to the nth degree. He's involved in everything. Um, and, you know, it's it's a playbook that for most CEOs would lead to disaster. Wasn't that the case with Steve Jobs as well? Yeah, so Steve Jobs, this, this is a good point. So Steve, Steve was a genius. <laughs> Steve was a genius with the dark side. Um, and the genius was real and the dark side was real. You, you, everybody's seen the results and the results, you know, obviously make the whole thing worth it, but like Steve could be really rough on people. And there are many, you know, true stories about Steve being really rough on people. And, you know, th- this would be a great example is ben, Ben's view would be, yeah, you just don't do that. You figure out how to be great without basically, you know, being rough on people like that. 
And you know, I would say like in general, that's the be that's the best advice, right? Mm -hmm. in, in general, if you're coaching a, a, a young kid on how to like run a company, that, that you want them to try to calibrate that. Because mm -hmm. generally, if you're really because you don't really get anything for that behavior. Well, Steve did. <laughs> well, we don't know that. We, we don't, don't know because he that. didn't have Ben coaching him. Okay, so this would be the argument. Okay, so this would be maybe the argument that Ben and I would have about it, which no. is Ben would say Ben would say what you just said. Ben mm -hmm. would say no, the, that was purely destructive. If if Steve had not done that, he would have been even better. Yeah. Well, we don't know. There's no way to know. But I do think that's a real question. It's a real question. I can make the other side of the argument. Tell me. The other side of the argument is A players want to be in a company of all A players. Like yeah. the, the people want to be around other great people. Yes. Most companies are way too tolerant and indulgent of mediocrity. Most companies are good at getting rid of just like what we call shitbirds. Like they're, they're good at getting rid of people who just are clearly no good. What they have trouble with is mediocrity, right? Good but not great. And Steve just like could not tolerate mediocrity. And so when he identified that you were, he actually had this, there was a term called flipping the bozo bit. Uh, and when he flipped the bozo bit, he, like, he just, he fired you that day because what he, what he had learned over time in his view was that you never unflip the bozo bit, right? You just need to call it right up front. And Ben would disagree with that idea? Yeah, yeah. He would say, look, it's just too hair trigger. Like, you're, you're in a meeting with somebody, um, and they say one thing that's wrong, and you fire them on the spot. Like, how do you know? Like, mm -hmm. you're not telepathic. Like, you just happen to be in that meeting, and look, maybe his wife yelled at him this morning, or maybe yeah. his kid just died. Like, you don't know what... And also, maybe he's actually right, because it does happen sometimes. <laughs> exactly. Maybe he's right. Yeah. Exactly. I'll tell you, the conversation we had on this that really made a big, big impact on both of us yeah. was with Andy Grove, uh, who, you know, who, was, who was passed away. But when, when he was uh, running Intel, he was considered kind of the best CEO in kind of the history of the tech industry. And, uh, and we, when we were young, we, we used to meet with him and he, he would help us uh, on things. And, we, and so one of the questions we had for him was like, wow, it always feels like we're firing people too late, right? It's like every time we fire somebody, it's like, wow, we wish we had done it like nine months sooner, right? Because they had done damage in that nine months yeah. or because you missed an opportunity yeah, something yeah. better, both. Well, it's, it's this flipping the bozo bit thing. It's, it's like, okay, we identified that they had an issue, a problem. You know, every once in a while, people can turn it around. But most of the time in a workplace environment, if you've got competent management, when they identify that somebody has an issue, like generally people don't turn it around. Like they just, statistically, they just generally don't. And so you have this thing where, like, if you're running kind of the standard management playbook, you, you, you put people on what's called performance plans and you, you try to, like, more aggressively kind of coach them for improvement. And then they normally don't make it through. And then at some point, three months or six or nine months later, you kind of make that call. And, uh, and actually, the reason you put people on performance plans is because most companies are too indulgent of, of mediocrity. And so most companies don't aggressively performance manage along the way. They don't document things along the way. And you need to put people on the performance plan to have the legal justification for firing, firing them because you need that paperwork that you actually like did evaluate them. Um, but like, you know, you're just like, shit, like I'm just, I'm wasting time. This person is doing a mediocre job. They're infecting the organization with mediocrity. I, I wish I could move faster. So we, we asked Andy, we asked Andy, is, you know, basically like, you know, is it normal to always feel that you're firing people, you know, three months or whatever, nine months too late? And he's like, yeah, he's like, that's what it always feels like. And he said, the reason is because if you did it more aggressively than that, the organization would view you as a sociopath, right? And it's like, well, <laughs> Steve didn't care, like about being viewed as like, you know, he just, he was just like, yes, we're just not, I'm not optimizing for what people think of me. I'm not optimizing whether people think that I'm nice. I'm optimizing that the people around me are going to be at the top of their game. And if they're not, they're going to go, right? And he, and he wants the exact same way, right? And then the, and then the results, and again, this is the argument, right? Ben and I have is like, okay, Apple, <laughs> Tesla, space, you know, rockets that land on their butts, right? Like, you know, uh, like, oh my God, right? Is, is the Steve Elon playbook, like the more aggressive playbook, actually the one everybody should be having? And, and Ben's comment to that is, no, most people will destroy their organizations if they try to do that. Like, that doesn't actually work. I, I go through all of that just to say, yeah, that's, that's the kind of debate we, that we'll have.
And, and look, it's not resolved, right? Like, and, I, and quite honestly, well, you can, it's unknowable. It's unknowable. I don't think it ever will be resolved. Tell me why a company would choose to stay private and why it would choose to go public. Mm -hmm. So most of the great business institutions that are around for many decades, most of them are public companies. Um, and the reason is because they end up with a lot of employees, they end up with a lot of customers, they end up with a lot of constituents, they end up with like, you know, governments, you know, getting very interested. Are there any that are private? Yeah, there are big ones. I mean, I mean, I mean there's a bunch. I just, there's one prominent one would be Coke Industries, uh, Charles Coke. Um, it's a giant industrial company and they do like, they're huge, like they're, they're a giant, they're big. I mean, I don't know, know the numbers, they're just, uh, numbers are just titanically large. They'd be, a, they'd be a Fortune 50 company tomorrow if they went public, but they, they, he's kept it private the whole time. Bloomberg uh, is another, uh, Bloomberg, the company Bloomberg is another uh, example um, of a big- And that's uh, a private company. A private company has always been private. Mike Bloomberg just owns it outright. So yeah, they, they exist, but most of them end up public. And I think the reason they end up public is just because if you're an institution at some point, you kind of have to act like an institution. You have to be, you have to be trusted as an institution. You have to be, so you have to be transparent. People have to know what you're doing. Public companies carry with them this, these responsibilities to report to the public. You have to explain yourself in a way that's very open and you're under these very stringent legal requirements to do so accurately. So people tend to trust the things that public companies say. <laughs> more than private companies. How accurate are those results? So in the United States, I would say quite accurate. Um, either they are wholly accurate or if they're not, they're off a little bit. Outside the US, it is still the Wild West. So we went through a, we went through a series of scandals in the, in the US business world. We went through a series of scandals in the 2000s around Enron and, and companies, and WorldCom and companies of that era. And the, the stringency of the accuracy of the re reporting and the level that you get reviewed by the government and the penalties to lying are quite high now. And, and look, like, most people, most responsible people want to run something that is like legitimate and genuine, right? There's an old, there used to be an old thing, there used to be an old thing I used to hear when I was a kid, which is like, you know, remember there was this gangster named Meyer Lansky that famously ran, ran, ran the big part of the, the, the mafia in the U.S. And, and people used to say, well, you know, Meyer Lansky was so successful as a gangster, if, you know, just imagine how successful he would have been if he was like, you know, running General Motors, right? Like, and, and it's actually, I think that's actually untrue, right? Uh, I actually think like, you know, Meyer Lansky is actually very ill-suited for running a big public company because you get caught lying you know, and you break somebody's legs and like you, it's a big problem, right? Like that's not what a trusted institution does, right? And so the, the, the best and the brightest actually, I think, want to be legit. They, they want to do something that's like actually genuine. Um, and, and that's true for, you know, for companies as well. Look, having said that, outside the US, like, <laughs> boy, like the scandals, I mean, even Europe, like the scandals in Europe are like mind bending. And then, you know, once you get outside the, the, the developed world, like things get really hairy. So the, most, most of the world is not well developed on this stuff yet. But anyway, so there's the transparency, um, you know, kind of truth-telling component to it. There's also the, at some point, you want to have a lot of shareholders. Like, at some point, you want kind of the world at large to be able to invest in your company. You know, you want ordinary people to be able to have a stake in your success. You want kind of everybody to have your stock in the retirement plan, because then it sort of gives everybody a reason to kind of root for the company. You know, at some point, you want to be able to, you've got all these employees that you're paying in stock. At some point, you want them to be able to sell their stock and be able to buy houses and send their kids to college. You also get what's called a currency, so your your stock becomes a currency, and so you can use your stock to like buy other companies, right? And you know it's easier to raise debt uh, when you're when you're when you're public. And so they're they're and then, by the way, a lot of a lot of employees just want to work for they want to work for an institution. They don't want to work for some fly by night startup. They want to work for something that's trusted, where they can, you know. One of the things I do with uh, candidates a lot of the time is, especially immigrants, uh, kids, you know, some some kid who's you know sort of a first generation immigrant. You know, so I'll, I'll literally get on the phone with their parents, you know, and this has happened repeatedly where right? I sort of explain to the parents like, no, actually, it's OK. It's OK if your kid doesn't go to work for IBM, right, or Microsoft or Google. It's OK if they go to a startup, because actually in the U.S., that's not actually because what their the parents are worried about career death. 
if it doesn't work out, right? And so there, there, there are a lot of people who just want to work for a stable, a stable company. So anyway, so those are all the, the, the reasons to go public. Uh, the reasons not to is just like, look, you're, you're exposed to all the scrutiny, right? Um, and so you, you, you... Is it only scrutiny or anything beyond scrutiny? Oh, well, so it's the consequences of scrutiny. So you have, a, you have a stock price. The stock price trades every day. Um, but do you start making decisions based on the stock yeah, price? Uh, big time. But that's a, not your core business. Correct. Changes your whole business model. Exactly. 100%. Right. That seems bad. Yes. Well, it depends on. It, yes. So it, it destroys a lot of this. This ruins a lot of companies. So the, the easiest failure case is that um, you've been running your company, just running your business the way you run a business, and then all of a sudden you've got this daily scorecard, and you're optimizing the daily scorecard. Or, or even if you can get through the day, you're optimizing your quarterly results. You're, you're reporting every ninety days, and you're optimizing for that. And so, yeah. So when this when this goes poorly, basically what happens is time horizon uh, contracts, right? And so instead of planning things one, three, five, ten years out, you're planning ninety days out and you, you, nobody can do anything great in 90 days at the scale of these companies. And so you just basically, like, this is, a Elvis, this is when Elvis leaves the building, right? Like, so, yeah. and, and by the way, often this coincides with, this is when the founders step down and then they hire a professional CEO. Professional CEOs then sort of optimizing for their own compensation. They're optimizing on these short, short time frames. And so that's, that, that's a big downside. There are ways to deal with that, but that is a, a big downside for sure. In your position, when you're investing in companies for 10 or 20 year trajectories, if they go public, how does that change your position? Because yeah. it's now they're playing a different game. Yeah, that's right. They're no longer playing the 20-year game. Well, they might be. There are public companies that do, right? So Amazon played the long game the whole time, still does. Apple played the long game. They were public. The whole time Steve Jobs did the turnaround of Apple, they were a public company. I mean, look, Tesla's been public for, I don't know, a decade? SpaceX is private, but Tesla's public, and Elon runs Tesla the exact same way he runs SpaceX. You know, Netflix, you know, invests for the long term. You know, there's a lot of these companies that have, have I think, done a, you know, Meta, I can tell you Mark Zuckerberg, you know, at Meta, this hasn't changed how he views things. You know, look, it, it can be done. It's a uh, higher competency, you know, it's a little bit more of a high wire act. Like, you're, you're getting graded by the world on what you're doing, and like, you know, oh, this is a speech we give the CEOs, because they're like, oh, well, I'll just do what Steve Jobs did, I'll just do whatever I want, it doesn't matter. I'll be like, yeah, but you just need to imagine what happens when your stock drops like 97%. <laughs> you're on the front page of every business newspaper in the website in the world talk, you know, talking about what a turkey you are, right? Have you experienced that? Oh, of course, yeah, 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 multiple you times. You have to give me a specific example yeah. of what's it like. Oh yeah, it's just, it's, hor it's horrible, it's, it's awful. Yeah, no, it's happened multiple times. Most of these companies, there's this great form of a chart, financial chart called the drawdown chart. And the drawdown chart is basically, um, its baseline is zero, and then the chart is the percentage drop that the stock has experienced in, point, in, in different points of time. And so it's zero to like a negative 100%, right? So it's like this, and then it's like, and it, what it looks like is it looks like somebody having a heart attack. It's a cardiac arrest. And so I just give the, the drawdown chart for Amazon is really interesting, because of course Amazon's this just giant success. But like there have been like, I think five different times in the last 20 years where the stock has dropped like 97% or something like that. I mean, just like these massive crises of confidence where basically everybody's just like, yeah, this is... Well, it had no profits for how many years? For a very long time. Very, very long time. For a very long time, exactly. And so you, you were running... Yeah, right. You were running the... So what, what Jeff had was, and he talked about it publicly. He's like, look, we're investing for the long run. We're reinvesting every penny of internal profit back into the business. We're building what they call intrinsic value in the business. And we're just not going to hand out you know, dividends to shareholders. And... The investors who went along for that ride did great, but you know it's easy to say that. It's harder to do it when your stock drops 97%. Yeah. And the headlines, uh, I mean, there was a famous uh, cover of Barron's Magazine in 2005, and Amazon at that point was already like 10 years old or coming up on it, and it was literally, you know, the headline was literally dot bomb. Wow. Right? Like Amazon is going out of business. Wow. Right? They're going to be, it's going to be worth zero. Wow. I mean, I went to investor, I went to investor conferences in the early 2000s where people were just openly laughing at Jeff, just like laughing at him in the, in the meeting. Like you're just like completely full of it. And look, everybody, part of being a CEO is people are doubting you, whatever. When the entire world is doubting you, 
<laughs> like it's just because what you know what happens. You know what happens is like anybody who's had a bad career, it, it, they've had one of those moments. It has that which is like all of a sudden you're talking to your friends, and your friends are like, "Are you okay?" Right? Like how are things going? And then you go home. You know, your family's like, "Are you all right?" And you're like, "Yes, I'm fine. I'm the same person I was. I'm, I'm not." Did you know Jeff at that time? Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Was he fine? Yeah, he was fine. No, 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 no impact. No, 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 let me let me let me say this. Like th- this is the four a.m. thing. I yeah. don't know since I was not sleeping with him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Today we have a much closer relationship. But back then, back then I was not sleeping with him. Um, and uh, so, what is he experiencing at four in the morning? That I don't know, right? And you know, there's only really you know two people who are in a position to know that, right? Him and his wife uh, at the time. So that I don't know, but to the outside world and to all of his friends, he was fine the entire time. And he was fine the entire time because he's just like, look, we have a plan, we're executing the plan, we're not gonna get shaken off of this. Now look, you, you could also say, right, a fair response to what I just said is survivorship bias, right? Like here I sit talking about the ones that worked, like what about all the ones that didn't work, right? Because yeah. like a lot of times when the stock market, you know, drives the stock to zero, it's because the company sucks and like it's gonna fail, right? And so like that's the other side of it, right? There's no substitute for the thing. Are there working. ever times when the market loses faith in a company and it goes to zero, but the company still has value. Mm-hmm. And then it comes out back out of the ashes and reinvents itself. Yeah, so our company, so our company, our company, which uh, was our LoudCloud, uh, was our company Ben and I started in 99. We went public in 2001. Um, and then by 2003, by 2003, our market capitalization of our stock was half the amount of cash that we had in the bank. Right, and so had we just simply liquidated the company and given the cash back, you, you would have made twice your money on the stock. And so what the market basically said was, yes, these guys have, what, what that meant, what the market was telling us, the message implicit in the price was, these guys suck so bad that, that even though they have this cash in the bank, they're just gonna burn the cash and there's not gonna be anything left to show for it. And then um, we actually, ben, ben, was, ben gets most of the credit, he was running the company, um, he, he turned it around and then we ended up selling, I think the stock went up 40X off the bottom. We sold the company for 40x that amount, and yeah, that was you know sort of a quote unquote turnaround. Um, look, Steve Jobs, Apple. So when Apple, when Steve took Apple over in '97, when he came back, uh, Apple had less than 90 days of cash in the bank. Like they were about to go bankrupt. <laughs> like that's how bad it was in 2001. No, 2009. I, I had a chart I was carrying around in my pocket all through 2009, 2010 when we were starting when we were starting the firm, and I think Apple was trading at a, I think they bottomed out at a price earnings ratio of like six. And, and what that basically means, a price earnings ratio of six, basically it's like what a steel mill trades at if it's about to go out of business. It's like trading for the liquidation value of like the plant equipment. Like it, it's a super low, it's basically the market hates you and thinks you're an idiot kind of thing. And this was like, this was like right when the iPhone was taking off, right? And so it was this like, banana, and there's a, there's a loose relationship between PE ratio and growth rate. We're, we're roughly speaking, PE ratio and growth rate should be about the same. And so if a company's growing 10%, if it's growing earnings 10% a year, it should have a PE of about 10, sort of a loose, a loose relationship and Apple had a phase there where they were the PE was six and the growth rate was like 40% and then in some periods through there as high as 80% and so it was like undervalued by like a factor of 10 just on like basic math and it was obvious to see that well it was I I thought I mean I, look I wasn't running public money I didn't put money where my mouth was I gave a lot of inter- interviews at the time where I pulled out this chart and again because the point I was I was not trying to make a stock call the point I was making is everybody hates tech irrationally like after the financial crisis like everybody got negative this about was it. after the 
the dot-com. Well, it happened twice. So it happened after 2000. So what happened was the 2000 crash was like a real tech crash and tech really fell apart. And there was like actually a lot of carnage and a lot of companies went under. And then what everybody thought would happen was the global financial crisis of 2008 would cause that to happen again, but it didn't. But they thought it was going to. So, there so was, they acted like They it. acted as if it would and they, they traded the stocks as if that was what was about to happen. And so basically 2008 to 2011, 2012 was just this extreme level of irrational hate and fear. And again, it's not like a super genius thing to be able to say, looking, because you're looking at it and you're like, well, I don't know, this iPhone seems like, it seems like they're going to sell a lot of these things, <laughs> right? And the same thing, like Google was growing super fast, you know, Facebook was growing super fast, and, but the world at large had just gone negative. Well, there's this famous thing, in the, or the metaphor for the stock market is this famous thing. Uh, they say, so you think about the stock market as a person in Mr. Market. Um, and he's like full on, you know, clinically manic depressive, right? And there's just like certain times that Mr. Market is just euphoric about everything. Um, and there are certain times when he is just terminally depressed about everything. And then we all collectively are Mr. Market, right? So it's a group psychology thing. And so it's very hard to be a participant in the world and not get pulled into the group psychology. Mm. But as a consequence, the market goes through these wild, these wild swings, and, and they, it, it does regularly go through periods where people are just irrationally negative. And then, of course, you know, and then it's like, okay, you read the investor textbooks, and it's like, well, that's when you buy the stocks. And it's like, well, yes, but that's when everybody's in a horrible mood, and anybody who buys these things looks like a complete idiot because everything, everybody knows that they're all going to go out of business. And yeah. so you talked about the consequences of being public. This is one of the consequences of being public is your, your companies get caught up in this um, and, and you feel it on a daily basis in a way that you might not if you're- So you could be in a tech company that's not public yeah. and you're just looking at your bottom line and everything's fine and you know your business is doing well. Right. Whereas another, the same company public, yeah. all of a sudden gets caught up in this wave of things crashing yeah. and you crash with them, yeah. but nothing has changed in your company. That's right. Well, this goes to this relationship between you know the sort of metrics and management, right? And so there's this whole thing in management, which is you 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 manage what you can measure, right? And so if you have a number, right, that you can optimize on, you tend to optimize on that, and you tend to run your company around. That. It's the same thing politicians do with polls, right? I've I've got a poll number, and I'm just going to try try to optimize around that. Now, is that the optimal way that people are actually going to vote? Like, who knows? But like, you've that's what you you've got. You've probably seen this in political speeches. Have you seen this? They do this on TV with political speeches or debates, and they'll have this thing where they'll have a focus group and they'll have a dial that they can go to like 100% negative, 100% positive, and then there will be these red and blue lines, and it shows word by word. It shows the mood of this focus group watching the thing, and so it's like a stock price, right, for every word coming out of a politician's mouth. And so, if you're a politician. Do you use that as a tool to try to like optimize every single word coming out of your mouth and like basically become the master of the craft of political speech giving? Or do you say, well, that's crazy. Like if I, if I get wrapped up in that psychology, I'm gonna drive myself nuts and I'm gonna end up, end up being incredibly you know, unauthentic and I'm just gonna be like a pure opportunist. And it's, this, it's, yes, it's the same thing with, these, with the stock prices. You read a lot of history. Is this just out of passion or do you see some, some other use in understanding the past. It's a desperate attempt to predict the future. <laughs> so, so look, for 30 years, like I've been, you know, I've been doing this now for 30 years, starting companies or funding them, you know, statistically with what I do, it's like a 50% success rate, 50% failure rate, basically. Is what the, with the, with the which is pretty good, actually. Which is pretty I mean, good. It's pretty remarkably good. Well, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I mean, it, it, it feels terrible. <laughs> <laughs> It feels awful. It's like your business. I mean, it's like your business too. It's like, you know, some, sometimes the elders... 50% is remarkable. Yeah. I, well, you know, for baseball, it's great. Um, you know, there are other, you know, fields, you know, for test taking, it's terrible, right? Like, you know, driving on PCH, you got to score hundred percent, right? So, 
so yeah, so like it depends. Like, look, and here's another thing, like stati so statistics. But you're betting on things that are one in a million things. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, or yeah, or let's say one in a thousand or something. Okay, one in a thousand <laughs> things, fifty yeah. percent is really good. It's good. And look, <laughs> yes, and just like in your business, the the upside on the winners is bigger than the downside on the losers. Yes. Right. And so if if you're if if you have asymmetric upside on the winners uh, and contained downside on the losers, then fifty percent does does well over time. But the failures are just always horrible, yeah. right? Like that, that doesn't get you, statistically you can know that, yeah. intellectually you can know that, emotionally every failure hurts tremendously. Mm -hmm. and, and it's wrapped up with people, right? So these are people that you care about, right? And like when one of our companies fails, like it's, our, it's not gonna take our firm down because of the 50-50 thing. And our, our investors understand that, but like it's a founder who has poured five, I just, we just had a company just, had, you know, guys poured five years into this, right? And like it's, it's been a big part of his life and you know, you know, some of these people bounce back and they go and do other things. Other people just like, they, at some point, they're just like, I can't take it anymore. And then they, they you know. Yeah, but not everything works. Not everything works, exactly, exactly. That's, so, that's real. Yes, very much so, right. And, 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 oh, and then there's, there's another thing in tech and in venture, which is uh, it's called the Babe Ruth effect, um, which is the home run hitters strike out more often. And so, right, the people who are really trying to do something new uh, and radical um, actually fail, fail at a higher rate, which, which makes sense. Because you're for the fences, it makes the fences. sense. That's right. Predicting the future of these things is absolutely impossible. Like that said, like, boy, I sure wish that I could. And so how do you ever possibly predict the future? And I do think there's some wisdom that comes from understanding, in particular, the human dynamics. So I think people do change, I think people have changed. I'm not, I, I'm not actually a believer that like we're the same people we were 100 or 1,000 years ago. I think actually the people themselves might be changing, but um, in, in a lot of ways. But look, people, there, there, are, con there are you know, constants to human psychology, sociology, behavior of you know, human beings in crowds. Uh, there are cycles in history of different kinds. And so at least in the past, you can kind of go back and, you know, it, it, the risk of reading history is always that you know the outcome. And so the outcomes look inevitable after the fact. But if you can kind of get yourself away from that, and if you can, especially the, the, the history works that I really like are either contemporary accounts of what it was like in that moment to actually experience that, or really the best historians are very good at recreating what it actually felt like to be there when it was all very uncertain. And then look, there's also just a lot, of, there's a lot of tools. Like you can just learn, you know, there've been a lot of great people who have navigated through very difficult situations. Like how did they do it? Mm -hmm. Like what's the toolkit? So yeah, so it's, it's a desperate reach into the past to try to learn whatever lessons they have, to, they have to give me. Can you think of an example where something you learned from reading history impacted a real world decision that you made in the present? Well, look, I was just say, look, rallying people after, after disaster, right? Which is like, okay, there's been a catastrophe at a company. Like, okay, now you've got to like recohere the team. Like, how do you do that? And you know, how do you do that? Well, you gotta get up and talk to them. Okay, well, how do you do that? Well, how did Churchill do that, right? Like, you That's know, a great idea. Right? Yeah, yeah, That's that, a great that idea. kind of thing works really well. Yeah. And look, you know, these are things that most people have not done right, in a lot of cases. And so, you know, being able to learn from, this is somebody said, you know, it's like history, you know, the best of history is this, you know, incredible intellectual conversation across brilliant people over time, you yeah. know, who have kind of learned from each other by, by basically by reading. Are the top VCs more of a group of colleagues and friends or rivals and enemies? Uh, both, uh, co-opetition, as we like to say. So um, we probably work together more than we compete. And the reason is because most successful companies raise from multiple VCs over time across multiple rounds. And so we end up on boards together and working with companies, but we do compete head, out, head on for deals. And the, the, those competitions can get, can get, we punch each other in the nose pretty hard. Uh, we're in one of those right now and we're gonna try to punch another firm in the nose as hard as we can. And so, you know, that happens. And then I think it's like, uh, it's like any business. It's like actually, you know, the movie business down here is famous for it, or I don't know, music probably is also, which is, you know, you, you do end up with grudges. You know, you do end up with like two prominent figures who like really hate each other. And it's like, you know, well, 20 years ago, one of them said something, you know, in a meeting. <laughs> 
And I was gonna, and I've got my I've got my list. Uh, ben doesn't hold grudges. Ben's great at not holding grudges. I hold grudges, and, and Ben's wife holds grudges. Um, and so when when Felicia and I get together, we That's like so funny. We compare. We're like uh, the, uh, the Anya Stark character in uh, Game of Thrones, where every night we recite the list of all the people that we're gonna Amazing. Like, at some point. Yeah, and like I always, you know, Ben's kind of always kind of on me on this. Is like, you know, maybe you should let some of these things go. And I'm like, well, no, actually, they're quite motivating. <laughs> like. <laughs> I'll tell you one thing that gets me out of bed in the morning is, you know, the opportunity to really stick it to somebody who I feel like did something wrong, you know, <laughs> 20 years ago. That's unbelievable. So I, I kind of like, I like my grudges. I, okay. they're, they're very close. They're very, they're very important to me. Do all the VCs do the same thing or does each house have a particular style or strength? I would say that the commonalities are there's, there's a few universals, which is basically, and it's sort of this triangle. It's basically team, product, and market um, is what you keep coming back to. So are the people really good? Are they building a product that people want? And then is there a market that they can sell it to? And it's sort of the most simple form of the whole thing. And those probably are, you know, those were the most important things 50 years ago. Those are probably the most important things 500 years ago. By the way, there's a long history of VC that predates all of tech, which we could talk about if you want. But um, Yeah, tell me about it. So, you know, um, uh, Christopher Columbus shows up in the, what is it, the court of Queen Isabella, and he's got this, like, crazy idea to discover whatever it was, the new route to India, and he needs, you know, X, whatever, whatever Spanish pesos at the time or whatever it was to be able to get off the boats. Like, he was making a venture pitch, uh, contained downside, like, you know, on, on, you know what, what's the worst thing that can happen is he burns all the money and the ships sink and everybody dies. <laughs> Unconstrained upside, like, what if he discovers, you know, the new world? Right, and then of course survivorship bias. We remember that story because uh, it worked. We don't remember the thousand others that failed. Right, so he was raising venture capital. There's a famous story. J.P. Morgan was J.P. Morgan was an investment banker who mostly dealt with debt uh, uh, for building out big things like railroads. But he sort of dabbled in venture on the side. And he was a uh, this is like 120 years ago now. He originally was he was Thomas Edison's first uh, investor for indoor lighting. Wow. Um, and so he wrote Thomas Edison a check for uh, the new lighting business. And he, the, the first indoor lighting system, electric indoor lights, were installed in J.P. Morgan's uh, famous library in New York by Thomas Edison personally. And then three weeks later, they caught on fire and burned his library down. <laughs> <laughs> and then he paid Thomas Edison to, to do it again. Yeah. Uh, rebuilt the library and put in lighting and it worked. So he did it. The one that I find so fascinating is actually the, the whaling uh, industry. So the structure of the modern venture capital industry is basically is very similar to how whaling expeditions were funded in the 1600s, like off the coast of Maine. And it was a very similar kind of thing where you had basically these captains who were the entrepreneurs, and they would put together a business plan for a boat and a crew, uh, and they'd actually have they'd actually have an equity model for how the, the crew members get paid. They get paid as a basically on a portion of the whale. <laughs> And then they would come and pitch the basically the way the, the people who financed uh, whaling journeys, the, the VCs of the time. And the VCs were specialists in evaluating the captain and the boat and the plan. The captain was a specialist in like figuring out questions like, well, we do we go to the place where there have been lots of whales spotted, but those are the places other people are going to be at, or do we go to this other place that we think nobody's <laughs> discovered yet? And then you know, like a third of the boats never came back. <laughs> And then there's this concept, the way that VCs get paid is it's called, there's this concept called uh, carry. Uh, the term is carried interest, and then the, the sort of colloquialism is carry. And it's basic, and the idea is basically it's like 20% of profits. You know, for the ones that work, you kind of make 20% of the, of the profits, or, or some number like that. And it, it's called carried interest. And the reason it's called carried interest is because that's how the, cap, that's how the captains got paid on the successful whaling expeditions. And it was literally, it, it was the percentage of the, of the whale meat and fat that the ship could carry. Is where the, the term carry com comes from. Uh, and so on a successful voyage, the captain would get 20% of the whale. It's interesting. Both examples you gave are about light because the reason the whaling was such an important part was that's what was the fuel for the light before the electricity. 
very fundamental. Yep, exactly. That's amazing. Yep, exactly. So, so look, it's, it's always been basically what you find. You have, you have this kind of, this kind of entrepreneurial personality, and it might be the captain, right? Uh, you know, or it might be the founder or whatever. Or by the way, it's a movie producer, right? Is you, you have an entrepreneurial personality who has, record, you have a, who has a vision, but they're not going to be able to realize it on their own. They're going to need to be able to gather resources to do it, and then they're going to need money and partners to be able to do that. And then there's going to be some evaluation process. There's going to be some professional class of people who are trying to evaluate that. They're going to be operating in this domain where they're wrong a lot of the time, but the, the successes make up for it. And so it's kind of this universal pattern, and I think it's been running actually for quite a long time. But you know, the best guess would be this will run forever. Like this runs for thousands of years. You know, the, the kinds of startups that you'll have in a thousand years will be like totally different than what we have mm -hmm. now. But they'll they'll still have that the same, model. They'll have still have the that same property, the, the unknownness mm -hmm. of it. And you know, look, they'll be reading histories of what we did and being like, wow, I hope that you know, we can learn from all their failures, right? So it'll be, it'll be the same. <laughs> it'll be the same cycle. Just one more thing is like people get mad. This is what I always find interesting about, you know, because it's become very popular to kind of get mad at venture capitalists right now or kind of be mad about this whole process. Or you mentioned like the move fast, break things, get mad about disruption. It's like, well, it's like fundamentally, do you want there to be new things in the world? Because if you want there to be new things in the world, they're not going to show up predictably from well-mannered people who are going to behave well in every aspect of their lives. And then the, and then the, the new thing is not going to disrupt or change anything. Like that's not what happens. Change doesn't enter in this kind of peaceful calm. It's always a revolution. Exactly, right? And if it's not, it's not change, right? And so would you really prefer, to critics, I say, would you really prefer to live in a world of total stagnation where like nothing changes? Like, hey, is that really what you want? And by the way, what do you think would happen in, in that world? Like, what would the politics be like? What would society be like? And so, and I think, I think basically everybody would hate that. And so, but, but to live in the world in which the revolutions happen, you need to have a perspective and it's easy to say this and it's hard to do, but you need to have a perspective that says, yeah, these revolutions, like, look, they're going to be, they're going to be wild, right? They're going to be wild. They're going to upset a lot of things. They're going to upset a lot of people. They're going to upset power relationships in society, hierarchies, gatekeepers are going to be furious, right? Like old, you know, incumbents are going to be furious. Governments are going to get freaked. Like all that is going to happen, but it is a direct consequence of the fact that it does actually change you know, dynamism happening. And I, I just like, yeah, I, and nobody has ever figured out how to do this in a way that makes everybody happy. It's just a question of whether it happens at all. And, and by the way, there are many societies in which historically this didn't happen. And what we know of those societies is they basically just died. If you look at the Fortune 500 over history, <laughs> how much change has it had over what period and what are the inflection points? It changes a fair amount, although a lot of the changes have to do with like mergers. Like when two big companies merge, has anything really changed? I'll just give you an example. Time, you know, Time Warner here in town, uh, Time Warner Discovery have merged, and you know, it's, it's a sort of a high drama in the, in the media business right now. What's going to happen with that? But it's like you know, look, Warner Brothers Studios has been in business for a hundred years. If Warner Brothers Discovery works, it'll still be Warner Brothers Discovery in 20 years. If it doesn't work, it'll get bought and, you know, I don't know, maybe Apple buys it. And then Apple will run the Warner Brothers Studio for a while. And then at some point, they'll get tired of being in the media business and they'll sell it to, you know, I don't know, Disney or something. And so it's just like, you know, but it's still the Warner Brothers Studio, right? And so I think in, in, in big company land, it, 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 there's a lot of what looks like drama. In reality, it's just kind of trade assets as trading cards being traded around. Hmm. You know, is, are the movies any different than they were 10 or 20 years ago? Maybe a little bit, but not really. So I think a lot of the change is actually not real change. Having said that, look, the sectors change a lot, right? And so, you know, look, when, when, when there's like build out happening in a sector, I mean, when railroads were new, they were most of the stock market, right? Well, pre-tech, 
it feels like it didn't change so much. Well, but like cars, we, we forget what was new at the time, right? So like there was, you know, from the 20s through the 50s, cars were new, mm -hmm. right? And so the, the car companies became, you know, the car companies were not big in the 20s and they become huge and dominant by the 50s. You know, GE is Edison, basically. Like you had to like invent all that stuff. And before it existed, GE wasn't a big company than it was. So, and actually this is one of the things in history, one of the things that's useful in history, which is most new industries look like tech in the beginning. Uh, so, like an example, the car industry. Actually, it's, it's actually funny. The car industry actually didn't grow up originally in Detroit. It grew up in Cleveland. And the the stories of the first 20 years of the car industry basically are these hobbyists and tinkerers and you know, entrepreneurs in garages in Cleveland in like 1890, 1900, 1910, wow, trying desperately cool. to figure out how to get like these car things to work. Yeah. Right. And by the way, the car was greeted with like an enormous amount of fear and trepidation. Like people were not happy about the car. And like a lot of states had these. One of my favorite stories about people reacting to tech is. A lot of states actually in the U.S. did not want cars to be on the roads because what was on the roads was horses and people. Yeah. Um, and cars were dangerous and scary and loud and they freaked out the horses. And so the, a bunch of states actually had what they call red flag laws uh, in that time period where if you, you could have a car, but you needed to have the car. The car would break down all the time. So you had the car, you had your mechanic that would go in the car ride with you. The car would only go like 20 miles an hour, and that was, which was like super fast because it was faster than a horse. And then you had to hire a third, you had to hire a third guy to, to be 200 yards in front of the car with a red flag. <laughs> waving ahead of time um, so that uh, you, you so that the horses would know, uh, the riders on horses would know to, to, to pull to one side. And then um, the horse lobby got really mad about this. And so they passed a law in Pennsylvania where they said if a car and a horse encounter each other on the road, um, the owner of the car has to stop the car, disassemble the car into, into its pieces, <laughs> transport the pieces and hide them behind the nearest hay bale so as not to freak out the horse. And so so what, my, my point being like, what was that? That was the tech industry. Like that was the yeah. disruptive tech industry of that time. The personalities of the people. I'll give you an example. The, the car industry, GM is like this, you know, giant company, 100 years old. There was this guy, Alfred Sloan, who was like the famous CEO of the whole thing who built it. But actually there was a guy named Billy Durant who was actually the founder early on before that. He was like the Elon character. And he basically, and this guy, his name is lost to history for whatever reason, but he basically created the modern car industry. And he was, and you read the stories of him and it's just like reading about Steve Jobs. Right, or Ted Turner, right, or you know Larry Page or Sam Altman, or he's, he's one of these people, and so I actually think these patterns are old. I think these patterns are actually older patterns. Who do you view as your biggest competitor? I mean, this, this, the answer to this always sounds incredibly cheesy, but it actually is true, which is uh, it, it's it's me, like by far. Like, it, it, this is the speech I give inside our firm, which I very much believe, and I give the speech to myself all the time, which is like, look, if we screw this up, it's our fault. It, it's suicide, not homicide. And, and, and it's basically, it's because we were not, we were not as good as we needed to be. We, we, we screwed it up. Like, there, there was a way to do it, and we, we, we blew it. And, you know, maybe we blew it out of ignorance, but probably we blew it out of arrogance and ego and, you know, hubris. And then, you know, I think for what, I think for what we do, it is fundamentally a people business more than a money business. That's and interesting. Being in a people business, like every conversation matters. Yeah. Right. And you're dealing with people's lives. Right. So what I, this is the speech I give internally is you're dealing with people's lives. And when you're dealing with people's lives, you have to talk. You have to be very serious about what you say and you have to be very careful about the consequences of what you say mm -hmm. and really think hard about every conversation. And you know how it is. It's like, mm -hmm. OK, it's year, you know, we're entering year 15. I've had 400,000 conversations. The 400,000 at first conversation <laughs> could go really wrong. Right. Yeah. If I'm not like on the ball. And I'm much more, I would say I'm much more worried about that than I am about somebody coming in and like stealing our lunch money. Other than financial returns, <laughs> how do you know if you're good at your job? 
I th- at, th- at that point, I think it's basically what are people saying about you? Yeah, look, the thing is though, like, look, it's it's easy. There's e- there's a paradox at the heart of that, which is like it's really easy to get people to like you just by always telling them that they're smart and they're they're good and that their ideas are good. And like, we don't do that. And so the the trick is, do they still like you and trust you and respect you after you have spent ten, the truth. ten years telling them the truth? Yeah. Exactly. And, and that's really your it's your job. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. like the, yeah. it's when you tell somebody the truth, and you're giving them good news. <laughs> They can trust the good news because they know when you had bad news, you gave them the bad news. Yeah, that's right. If you just say everything is always rosy, it means nothing. Yeah, that's right. It's the bad news that gives you credibility. Yeah, that's right. But it's hard because absolutely people are under a lot of pressure, and they get you probably you know probably happens to you if they get upset in the moment, and then maybe a couple days later they're like, actually, that was a pretty good point. Yeah, you know, and look if they know if if, if they trust you, right? I mean, the, the, yeah. the other thing that Ben and I talk about a lot, Ben Ben says this a lot, is he says uh, <coughs> trust and communication are opposites. Uh, everybody thinks they're the same thing; they're not. If I trust you, we don't need to communicate that much because you know that I have your best interests in mind. Mm-hmm. Like Ben and I could go, we Ben and I have this. Ben and I could go off and not talk for three months, and we would we would come back, we'd have the exact same relationship on the other side because I have so much trust in him that I would know that whatever decisions he's making are in my best interest. Yeah. Right. Um, whereas if you don't trust somebody, like you really got to communicate, like you got to like cross check everything they say and like roll them and interrogate them. And so I think the you know, the best relationships are, you know, this is what you try to develop is like, actually, you know, look, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you some things you're really not going to like. Yeah. I'm doing that because I care. I'm doing that because I'm deliberate. And you're also doing that because you're being true to yourself in saying, this is who I am. This is how I see it, which is really valuable. Mm Mm-hmm. And look, I'm not going to step in and run your company. Like, I'm not going to fire yeah. you. I'm not going to like replace you. Like, I'm gonna like this is not the thing that's going to make or break anything. I'm just going to try to help you get to the get to the truth, and, mm-hmm. right? And then have the trust relationship over time, where you where you believe where you believe that that's what I'm trying to do. When you were in school in Illinois, there was a supercomputer. Yeah. How many supercomputers were there in the world at that point? A few dozen, maybe total. Most of them would have been in government labs. Most they, those are the those are the kinds of supercomputers used for like nuclear weapons development. Like so, that, that why was it there? Cryptography. So, so the government would have had a bunch, but not really anywhere else. I, I gotta you know I think give um, <laughs> got the government a fair amount of credit uh, for that one. So remember Al Gore got in trouble years later for saying that he invented the internet. The internet, and of course that's not what he said. And what he said was he had played a role in the Senate in creating the internet, and of course that was actually true. So that, that whole thing was actually a, a, a smear the whole time. That was actually true. And specifically what he did was he sponsored these bills in the early 80s, which did two things. Number one is they created what were called the National Supercomputing Centers. And that was four universities that were given basically these grants to buy these very expensive and rare you know, kind of things at the time. And to give you a sense of how like rare and special these things were, like in those days, like we, we had one of the, one of the computers at, at, at Illinois, they literally built a building for the computer and the computer was so big that they built the building um, and they left the roof open and they lowered, after the building was built, they lowered the computer by a crane. <laughs> Who made the computer? Uh, there was a, actually, it was a company, actually it's incredibly a company in Wisconsin. So uh, it was uh, a company called, there was a company called Cray. There was a guy named Seymour Cray who uh, did a lot of it. And then there was this company called Thinking Machines. And there's this guy, Danny Hillis, who you might have encountered at some point. So they were, the, yeah, these kind of very, you know, kind of special entrepreneurs who were good at this. They became sort of famous. You've seen them, you know, you've seen them in movies. They, they, one of the th- you know, they were so expensive. This was like 25 to $50 million and up. And this was, you know, this was 40 years Old ago. Money. So yeah. this is, yeah, this is like equivalent of like 100 million or t- something today per unit. 
but they actually, they, one of the things they really value design. And so they actually looked really cool. Um, cool. And they had like, you know, they were, they were water cooled. Uh, the heat, heat is always a big problem with, with any kind of advanced computer. And so they, they did what's called water cooling. So they would have these very elaborate you know, water cooling systems. There's a guy who actually bought one of these years later off of eBay and uh, converted the water cooling system into a beer keg. Uh, <laughs> it's like the world's <laughs> most expensive beer tap. So, but they, they were like works of art. And so you, you've seen them in different movies over the years. Yeah, so they were just like very, very rare exotic things. And, and so, so anyway, so the, the Senate, the government funded these four centers at these four state universities because these, these, these computers made new kinds of science possible. So these were used for like different astronomy, astrophysics, you know, decoding the secrets of the universe stuff. And then a lot of biomedical, you know, protein folding, developing new drugs, curing cancer, you know, kinds of research. So, you know, there were, there, it was sort of becoming key to a lot of areas of science. Um, and then, and then um, they, they, they had enough money to put four of these centers in place, but they wanted to give scientists all over the country access to the computers. And to do that, they needed a high-speed network to, to people could log in remotely. And so um, they funded what was called the NSFNet, National Science Foundation Network, which basically was, the inter- it was sort of the internet, pre-the-internet. And uh, yeah, and so I, I sort of, yeah, my, my big stroke of luck was, it, it turned out Illinois where I went was a top computer science school at the time and, and still is. And they were one of these four centers. And so they just had this. Did you go there knowing that was there? I did, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? I, I did. I didn't know if I, I didn't know that I would play any sort of important, you know, I don't know how, I didn't know how but relevant you, it would be to me, but. Seeked it out. Yeah, well, I knew what was happening. So that this was in the, you know, this was in the late '80s, and so yeah, th- th- it was big enough in the com- in the computer, in you know, the computer industry was being covered in like you know newspapers and magazines at that time. You know, this was there were articles written about this, was how we experienced it at the time. But um, you know, I, I knew it existed. Yeah, and I and I, and I did. Saw you have it. a home computer at that time? Yeah, although when I got to college in '89, you didn't the home computers in those days weren't actually useful in an academic setting. They weren't powerful enough, and but you had experience on a computer before you went to college. Yeah, but on really simple computers. So I, I, I sort of went from working on computers that cost like $400 to working on computers that cost like $40,000 in like one step. And so it, the, at, at that time, they were a different, it was a, it was a completely different kind of thing. So the computers that I worked on in college were just like, they, they were, they, as I said, they were like forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 baseline cost just to have something on a desk. And then these supercomputers were, you know, like I said, $25, $50 million. So these were not, it's, one of the advantages of being at a UIUC at the time was that they, they had these resources, they had this, this equipment. But like it, 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 all of my work was not done in my dorm room. It was all done in the computer lab, you know, with like fluorescent lighting and like drop ceilings and all this stuff because the, all this hardware was like super exotic. You know, these days that doesn't exist as much. Your phone today is the equivalent power of that supercomputer that I worked on. Um, your laptop is like more powerful than that. And so today that doesn't happen. If you just have a modern laptop, you have basically a full-fledged computer that you could do almost anything on. And then there's this cloud idea where you've got these grids of, you know, millions of computers up in the sky if you need more power. So it, so the, the sort of, I don't know, the romance or whatever of the, this exotic thing in a building being taken care of by people in white lab coats, you know, those, those days are kind of over. In terms of what the supercomputer was capable of, how does that compare to like you, your laptop at home now? Yeah, so your laptop at home, like, you know, my laptop right now is a MacBook. Uh, I think it's an M2 or M3, M3, M3 processor. And it's, yeah, it's, I don't, I haven't checked, but it's probably somewhere between 10 to 100 times more powerful than that supercomputer at that time. Yeah. Well, and in fact, you could ask a cynical question uh, on this actually, or, or I could, which is, um, if those computers in those days were so rare and exotic and they were able to be used for things like decoding black, the secrets of like black holes and everybody has a laptop that does that today, like where's all the creative, like where's all the science? 
Where's all the creativity? Which I think is a actually Good question. a very excellent question. But yeah, look, in theory, everybody has on their desk today, and increasingly just in their pocket, they have the ability to basically do what in those days we would have considered to be absolutely breakthrough scientific work. Or, by the way, artistic work. By the way, another thing that happened at Illinois, this is kind of lost history, Illinois was the, there were a, a set of universities and Illinois was one of them because of this that actually developed basically what we now think of as 3D computer graphics and ultimately developed what became, you know, CGI in the, in the, in the movie industry and the whole idea of computer graphic design. And so um, when you see, you know, when you see a, a rendered tornado or whatever in a Hollywood blockbuster, it actually, a lot of that is actually techniques that were actually developed also at Illinois and a few other places like that at that time. And the supercomputers, originally it was, it was, so, it was so hard to do computer graphics, they were so uh, uh, processor intensive that it was only those supercomputers that could do that back then. So that was another thing that actually was invented at that time. What was Mosaic? So basically I ended up at Illinois, um, I ended up working at this uh, supercomputing center after a few other things. And then, um, and then they had a group in that, in that supercomputing center that was building the software tools to make it possible for people to use these computers. And in particular, remember what I said, the, the link between these big centralized computers and then the, the internet, basically. The purpose of the internet as funded by the government was for scientists to be able to access these computers remotely. But then there needed to be a new kind of software tool that was built to actually make that possible. Um, and so there was a, a called call SDG, the Software Development Group at Illinois that was in, in business to do that, had government grants to build that software. And so Mosaic was a project that basically I, a group of us did at that, uh, at that, at that group. And uh, it's, it's, it's nominal purpose, funded by the government, and its nominal purpose was, uh, my, and by the way, not funded for a lot. I was making $6.25 an hour, so yeah. it was not a lot of tax money. But yeah, the, the purpose of it was basically remote scientific work. And so the, 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 the original purpose of it nominally was, you know, a scientist who, who wants to, like, you know, basically publish information, have other scientists be able to read it online. You know, Mosaic was the browser front end of being able to do that. And then we also had a cert, we had a web, with basically one of the first web servers um, that, that made it possible to, to, to store and host things. And so that was the nominal purpose. But then because it was government funded, we, we were able to give it, we actually had to give it away. We we're not allowed to make money on it. And so uh, we, we released it as open source. And then, we, and, and then the nascent internet was starting to get big enough where there were pe enough people on it downloading it and using it. And then they had ideas for other things that they wanted to use it for other than scientific papers. And then that led to the, ultimately the creation when, of the web. When did you understood it could be used for more than scientific papers. <clears throat> oh, right up front. I don't even think this was like prescience or anything. It was just sort of obvious. Like, it was just like, oh, you could, uh, the thing that just was immediately obvious was, oh, this could be used for newspapers. This could be used for magazines. This could be used for books. Anything. Anything, right, music. It's a new communication tool. Yeah, and like literally I, I worked on a lot, I, you know, there, I didn't build all this myself, but I, I worked on a lot of the early code for doing music online, <laughs> right? Like for, I remember when it was, we first figured out how to do music in the web browser. I remember how we first figured out how to do video in the web browser. And so I remember how for, when the internet radio first started working, like there was this, uh, this project that we were, we, we were not working on, but I knew the people working on it called Mbone at the time, which is a, uh, the first uh, music broadcast thing. And, and so it, there, there were a set of us where it's just like, oh, it's just sort of obvious that this is going to be used for everything. Like it's, it's a McLuhan thing. Every, the, the content of each medium is the previous medium, right? The, the content of a movie is the stage play, right? You know, the content of the music video is the, is the, is the music track. And so it was the same thing here, except this is the one where it's going to be all of them, right? And, and so I just thought that was obvious. A lot of us actually thought that was obvious. Um, that said, there were a bunch of purists who disagreed, and there was actually there was actually a big fight early on about whether the, there should be images in the web browser, images in web documents. And the argument instead of just text, instead of just text, because yeah. the argument was, I bet you can predict the argument, which was um, if it's just text, it all has to be serious, yeah. right? Where you introduce images.
images and it gets frivolous and then the frivolous will drown out the serious and then everything will go to shit right and, and i was like that's what happened yeah well a, a that's what happened and b i'm glad that it did right like yeah. who wants to live in a world where you don't have images yeah and by, and by the way you know there's a logical flaw right which is it turns out there's a lot of shit text too so like it's not it's not the text actually gets you guarantees you quality either it's true and i and i just and for, for better or for worse i always bias on the side of openness and creativity I, I i just i want more experimentation in the world not less and so anytime Same. anybody says no Same. we need to constrain this i'm like yeah no we're not going to constrain absolutely this. we're going we, to blow it out you never know because yeah. you never know that's right can't predict yeah but you get with the bad with the good right like oh okay so um so guess what so we rolled out images in web pages guess uh, guess where what some of the first images that people put in web pages well, you know, let's say dirty pictures. <laughs> Adult content. Adult content. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, uh, as my eight-year-old would say, special parts. Um, and <laughs> so, um, that started, and by the way, it was, it's a cliche that like the internet was used for porn first. That's not really the case. It was always kind of a marked edge thing. But, um, but you know, there, people did start to post, post uh, adult stuff. You know, and this is a government-funded program at the time. And so this was actually the, the, this was actually the first uh, free speech uh, issue. This was the first trust and safety issue. Uh, which is my boss at the time said, well, you have to like filter that stuff out. And I was like, filter what stuff out? And he's like, well, like nudity. And I'm like, uh, like, how am I going to know what, which, which pictures have nudity in them? Like, there's no way to do that. And he's like, well, you'll have to develop an algorithm that like detects nudity. And I'm like, what, like through what, like shapes? <laughs> like, like booby detectors? Like, is that what you're asking me to make? And he's like, yeah, can't you do that? And I was like, no, I can't. And furthermore, I won't. And I just like put my foot down and I said, like, we're not doing, we're not going to, we're not going to build censorship into the web. Yeah. And, you know, that had, I would say, like potentially civilizational consequences. You're at Mosaic. You're building what you're building. You could see a lot of things in the future, but how did you imagine the world? in the future then versus how the world is now. So, what did you see and what didn't you see? First is like, look, the, the day job, there, there's this kind of presumption, Oppenheimer actually went into this a lot, there's this presumption that the people developing the technology are somehow in a position to know the consequences of its use. And like, I think that's actually untrue on several levels. And one of them is just a practical level, which is most of what I was doing was just trying to get like code to work. So I, I had like a day job, which was like all consuming. It was like 18 hours a day of just like writing software and trying to like fix bugs in software. And so most of what I was doing, what's well, it's the old thing in art, which is when artists get together, they don't talk about art, they talk about where to buy the cheapest paint. So it, it's like that, like most of what I was doing was like mechanical, trying to like just get the stuff to work. You know, that said, look, I, had you asked me then, what I would have said was, look, I, like, I think this is gonna be something that a lot of people are gonna be able to use. And in those days, that was a very radical concept because mm -hmm. people didn't have the computers to use it, they didn't have the network connections, there was no broadband, there was no mobile, right? It was just, it was, people didn't, weren't comfortable with computers in the same way. It wasn't clear that there would be any good, you know, who would ever publish any content. It was like an open question at that point. And so, um, you know, it was, it, was, it was radical enough, I would say, at that time to say this is something a lot of people are going to use. And a lot of people are both going to publish content on the Internet and a lot of people are going are to consume it. And by the way, it's not just going to be fixed content. It's also going to be experiences and databases. And, you know, they're going to interact in different ways and chat and, you know, discuss things and, and so forth. We, we didn't have social networking, but we knew, like, we had chat boards and, you know, forums and stuff. And so we knew there'd be a lot of communication. There'd be a lot of groups forming and, you know, you know people. Did coming. you spend time on a lot of groups? Yeah. Yeah. What was that like? Oh, it was great. Well, so, so for in my world at that point, um, the dominant thing was what was called Usenet. And there, it was called, the system was called Usenet. And then the, the groups were called news groups. And they were basically, basically it's a bulletin board system that ran across the internet. And there was a period of about 1985, that predated me starting in 85 to about 1993 
so I saw four years of it where it was like digital nirvana. It was like the smartest million people in the world were like talking about everything under the sun and text only. Text. Uh, it was you. You could like embed. You could like embed images. You could like attach images, but it was mostly mainly text. text. Mainly text. Would it be conversations yeah. or more like essays? Both, both, both. It, a lot of essays, and a lot of conversations around essays. Um, and then there was a there was a folder. There was a whole hierarchy. So you'd have all these different domains, and so some of them were technical conversations, but there were like lots of political conversations, or lots of art. And you could find the topic you were interested yeah. in. Yeah, yeah. And you you would pick the news group that had the topic you were interested in. Some of the news groups were unmoderated, so you could say anything. Some of them were moderated. They had a human who would kind of keep them under control. So similar to social media, really. It was basically right. It was the er form of of, of of social media. But but what was fascinating about it in retrospect. Respect. It's it's a lost golden era um, that's it, it, it been impossible to recapture since, which is it basically grew to be the million smartest people in the world, with basically no for no idiots or assholes, and so it was it, it was totally like any anybody in theory could be on it and anybody could in theory say anything they wanted. It just so happened that the only people who had access to it were like the best and brightest. And so, it, like, there was no spam problem. There was no abuse problem. There were occasional flame wars, but like, there was nothing. You know, there was no hate speech. You know, and 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 then it's just the the, the content quality was just incredibly high, um, and the communities that formed were like incredibly high, and the trust level that formed was like incredibly high. You know, people became very close. You know, across as, as they do across this with people they never actually physically met, and, and it was so it was like this. It was like this nirvana of like you know, what if you could just have the millions of people connected to nobody else? And then of course, then what happened was like <laughs> everybody else showed up, and, and there's this there's this term in the internet culture called uh, eternal September. And so it's based on the fact that it was September 1993 is when AOL connected to Usenet for the first time. Um, and all the AOL, the 25 million AOL users or whatever it was at the time were able to be on Usenet and they just like buried it in shit. <laughs> just like completely destroyed the quality, right? And just swamped it. And it, then Usenet basically died in September of 1993 and never came is back. Is all that stuff still online? Can you find it? A lot of it is. So it's been preserved. There's, there's a thing called Google Groups. Google has a thing called Google Groups, and they have archives in Google Groups of a lot of these original things. And for what you, the kind of things you're interested in, it would be what we're called the alt groups. And so, like alt.music. Um, so if you go to Google Groups, you could read like alt.music discussions from like 1990, and I bet you would find them to be quite interesting. And so Eternal September is sort of this idea that basically now the internet basically consists of September 1993 in, in perpetuity, which is like no matter what good things there are, it's just going to get swamped with basically people with, you know, either dumb people or people with bad motivations. So anyway, so it is this like, it is this, uh, it is it was the Shangri-La of, uh, uh, of our experience. Are there ways to create gated communities online yeah well so there was a famous there was another famous one of that era called the well which was uh it was an internet it wasn't an internet system it was a bulletin board system and it was Stuart brand ran it and i think it had a total at the peak of like three thousand people and there were two tricks to how he did the well one was um i think he if i recall correctly i think he vetted all the new members so it was like a club and then two is he charged you know membership fee um and so you had to kind of pass both of those hurdles to get in and, and again and for for many for many years it was apparently really amazing spectacular um, by the way, this is an idea that, you know, nobody's really cracked the code on this, but like, you know, this is this is arguably like an undiscovered idea. You know, it's a known idea that nobody's figured out how to implement, which is like, how, how would you recreate that kind of thing today? Because it sounds really great. Yeah, exactly. Right. And it sounds like we spend a lot of time scrolling through things we might rather not yeah. if we had that more curated but you have to be—you have to be willing to violate the the dominant conceit of our time, which is you have to be willing to say that not everybody's the same. 
Right. And, and like, I look, generally I'm a fan of like, like I said, I'm a fan of openness. I don't like the idea of like gating people, you know, by my cue or anything else uh, or social acceptability or whatever. But like, yeah, there are within the universal, <laughs> within the universal global village. Yeah. I think, you know, it may just be that more people should start to carve out these more specialized areas. Um, you know, there, there are some, you know, there are, there are a few of these, there are mailing lists that are like this. Um, there's often actually something that happens. Often a new social media product will first take off with being incredibly high quality to start. Well, fa Facebook was like this early on because Facebook started out just being Harvard kids. And then it, when they expanded, they expanded to the top 10 universities. And, and look, the, like, the kids at Harvard have lots of issues, but like at least they're, at least in those, well, especially in those days, like they were, you know, 20 years ago, things have changed maybe even, even since then. But like, you know, generally speaking, if you want like a group of like, you know, 5,000 really bright young people, you, you know, the, the people going to the top universities are a pretty good cross section. And so, you know, and, and so there's this, there's this thing, which is there's, there's a, there's a pattern that we've all noticed, which is new social networks start. Well, a friend of mine puts it this way, which is the quality of any group can only decline over time. Right, because basically you only want to join groups that on average are better than you, right? You, you, you never want to, you never want to downselect. You never want to deliberately join a, a group that is. But it depends. Well, it depends what the axis, what the axis is. But like generally speaking, you want it's you know it's the it's the Groucho Marx. I don't want to be a member of a club that will take me. Right. Generally speaking, you want to sort of you know you want you want you want to go higher status by joining the group, not lowering your status by joining the group. And so I have this, this friend uh, who argues that um, basically the the thing with social networks is they're not technology platforms. They're, they're groups. They're communities. And the thing is, on day one, they're the best they're ever going to be. And then they, they and then they will inevitably decline. And but then there's a whole bunch of things you could do to try to basically arrest that decline if you tried. But you have to uh, grapple with the fact that it's, it's going to start out as very best, which means the selection process of who you start with is like incredibly important. And of course, the same thing is true of a company or any other kind of you know community. It's the same thing when you're planning parties. Like it's you know it's, it's human dynamics. And so arguably, there's like an unexplored design space for modern social networks that actually acknowledge that and didn't try to be everything to everybody and just tried to be specialized like that. So. I think it'd be nice for everybody to have the one that they want to belong to. Yeah, you know, you get, you to opt in. Yeah. That seems, sounds like a good thing. Yeah. And look, you know, there are versions of this, you know, uh, Facebook groups. There are some, some people have this experience with Facebook groups. Twitter, you know, if you use Twitter in the right way and you like customize lists and you pay a lot of attention to who you follow, you can, you can do, I've got a couple of Twitter lists that I think kind of count like this. And so you can, you can back your way into it, but it's not, I mean, the, the eternal September has dominated for, for better or for worse. Uh, the openness has resulted in, in how has writing code changed from when you were, when you were at school when you were a code writer versus writing code today, is it the same language? Could you do it now the same way you did it then? You could, yes, you could. So the, those, the, all those tools still exist. Those languages still exist. So I wrote, I, I wrote all my code in what was called language called C. Uh, and C is sort of a, it's sort of the native language of the operating system Unix. Um, it's it's sort of what, it's one of the great kind of universal programming languages that people with deep technical expertise are expected to know how to do. It's an older kind of programming language in that it is very the 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 semantics of the language are very linked to the hardware uh, of the chip. Um, and so when you're programming C, you are directly talking to the underlying hardware. Like you're you're directly the classic thing is you know so chip processor and then there's memory. And, and like in C, you, you have to do what's called managing memory yourself. And so you allocate memory on the memory card, you, you fill it, you have to unallocate it. If you don't unallocate it properly, you get what's called a memory leak. The program runs, it gets slower and slower, and then it ultimately crashes. So you have to like do all that. And it sounds like a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And, and you, you end up in, a, I would say, communing very deeply with the machine. Like you have to really understand how the whole thing works all the way down. We call the bare metal, the, the actual physical silicon. Like you have to really kind of understand that. It's really it sounds like a really 
good tool to learn yes. either way, whether, yes. whether you stay that way or not. Yeah. So the thing for a very long time, I think, and I, I, I had the beneficiary of this, I think the thing for a very long time that made a computer programmer really good was when they understood every aspect of how the machine worked all the way up to the graphics and everything, but then all the way down to the chips and the metal and the design. And I spent just as much time in school learning about how to like make chips and all this stuff as I did trying to make me software because it was like an integrated, integrated system. I think there's a, there's a critique, which I think is a valid critique, which is you know probably in the last 10 or 20 years, a lot of programmers now become actually very good programmers, but they never actually learn how to do that. And that's fine for a lot of things, but like anytime things get complicated where you need things to be super fast or you need them to be very secure, or you need them to get scaled to get really big, um, you do tend to need to bring in somebody who understands kind of what we call the full stack, the, the whole set of things. That's not as common anymore. So, so the overall trend that's happened um, in the last 30 years, 40 years is most programmers don't do what I was doing. They're not programming at the bare metal the way I was. Mostly what they're doing is higher level they call abstractions. And so they're, they're, they're in these languages that, just like languages like kids learn in school where they're, they're much easier to code in. You don't have to worry about any of the hardware, the memory, whatever. These so-called scripting languages. Python is an example. You'll hear where JavaScript, where you're, you're, you're they're, they're, it's easier. It's easier to get into. They're more, po more powerful languages. The language does more for you. So you can write like a new app faster than you could in the old days, but you've, you don't have that connection to the machine anymore. That was the big trend for the last 40 years, and then it just changed again basically last year. And, and, this, and this change last year, this year, is the biggest change that any of us have ever seen, which is the AI, the shift to programming with an AI. And in particular, basically the model that people have right now well, is, is one of either two things. Either you just tell the AI what code you want and it makes it for you, which, which works for like examples today, but doesn't work for building full programs yet, although it will at some point. But the thing that programmers do today is they have this model called a copilot, uh, AI copilot, right? And so the new model of programming is you're writing code on the left half of your window, and then you've got an AI chatbot UI interface on, on the right side of the window. And as you write code, the chatbot is inspecting your code and talking to you about it, and then you can ask it questions. Right, and so it can. So if you're writing code, you do a you do a you know typo or whatever, a bug, and the AI can continuously analyze the code as you're writing it. You can say, oh, that was a mistake. You should fix that right now. And you're just like, wow, that's great. Like I don't have to discover that the hard way later. That's great. Right, or you know, you could say like, um, I have here's I have this code that's going to render something. I need it to be faster. How should I how should I make how should I performance optimize it? And the AI will say, well, you know, here's how you do it, and here's how I would here's how I the AI would re rewrite it. And so, or you can tell the AI to like make changes, right? And so it's like, I want, you know, everything to be, I don't know, it's like you're, um, you want to do a translation from English to Spanish and you can use the AI to like find all the places where you have an English language word and you can swap into the Spanish translation and the AI could do that for you. And so it's like, it's copilot. It's like a super, it's like a super assistant yeah. uh, kind of thing. And so that's the, that's like a radical change. And so the, the coders that are using that versus not using that today, they're pretty much universally kind of saying that's a night and day kind of thing. And then that's just with today's AI and what everybody expects is the AIs of the future are gonna get much more sophisticated. And so the, the, the sort of what the AI people basically say is um, in five years uh, or 10 years, you're not even gonna have that. What you're instead gonna have is like the equivalent of like a thousand AI programmers working for you. And so you're not even gonna be writing code yourself. You're just gonna be like basically managing the AIs to write the code. And, and you can basically say, you know, go off and do all this design and just coding and graphics and like whatever it is. And you, you basically hand out assignments and then the AIs go off and do it and they report back. And then you kind of oversee the entire process. 
And so if, so if that vision plays out, that's a complete revolution, right? That, and, that, and then the way to think about that is we think about this in terms of productivity, you know, how much software functionality can one person make in an hour or a day or a year? And what all of these changes mean is sort of an explosion of productivity. You just get to make a lot more code. Yeah, if AI learns to code, that really changes things. Yes, exactly, right. Well, and then that raises all these questions that you get into on all AI topics, which is like, okay, well then is AI gonna get good at coding AI? Right, um, and so this gets into all the AI topics, which we could talk about. But but it's it's a very the reason I bring it up is because it's a very fertile it's a very fertile moment for our entire our entire world of technology rethinking how all this stuff works. You know, this this might be the, the biggest change that any of us have ever seen. What's different about AI? Why is it so different? It's different because um, <laughs> so it's in fact a very fascinating story. So. The idea of the computer, you know, goes back pre, you know, the computer was invented, as we know it, the computer was invented in the 1940s during World War II to basically crack Nazi and Japanese codes by primarily the U.S. and, and, uh, and English computer scientists, people like Alan Turing. And so, um, you know, that's the, and that's the true story. That's the conventional story. That's the true story. But the ideas are older than that. The ideas have to do with, like, machines that can, like, calculating machines, right? So there were, like, mechanical calculating machines before there were electronic computers. There was something called the abacus. The abacus was a form of this. There was also something called the, the jacquard loom. You know, textiles used to be weaved by hand, and mm -hmm. then at some point you built a machine, a loom, to do it. And then the jacquard loom actually you could program it. Um, I've seen them. Yeah, so you could and you could you, you have literally punch cards, and then you yeah. could you could do and then patterns. Yeah. And so they're, they're running basically a very rudimentary computer program in order to basically do patterns. And it's a completely mechanical process. Player piano. Player piano would be another good example. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's, it's not. Like jacquard loom player piano are not what we call Turing machines, which is like there's no concept of a loop. Like you can't you can't run any program on it, but you can run the program that generates beautiful textiles or beautiful music, right? And those were both big advances. And so, so anyway, so there, there there were a lot of these ideas in those days, which people were thinking. There was this guy Charles Babbage, and this woman Ada Lovelace, who like had a design for a, basically an electronic computer in the 1860s that they were never able to build, called the Difference Engine, which is like you, you, and you read the stuff they were. So Charles Babbage designed a computer called the Difference Engine that he fully designed. Great name. It is a great name, and it would have been a great thing to build. There's this genre now called steampunk. If you think about like the TV show or the movie Wild Wild West, there's an alternate reality genre called steampunk where like all this stuff actually started to work in the 1800s instead of waiting longer. And so like there's an alternate version of the universe where the Difference Engine is that what steampunk is? That's what steampunk is. Oh, cool. It's like living in the future, but it's a lost future where like you know you had flying cars and mechanical but computers. everything's retro and everything's retro everything's yeah. retro with all of with the, everything's built out of what they would have had in the 1860s i see so everything's out of like wood and chrome and steel cool idea and glass you know not all you know there's no plastic right it's, it's everything's out of the old materials yeah so some of that stuff is really good but uh so anyway like these are ideas and if you read like the letters like so uh charles babbage and ada lovelace would send these letters back and forth and ada lovelace was basically the first programmer and she was this young woman in like literally 1860. it actually had a tragic life story she died very young but um she was like writing software for the difference engine in like 1860 that and they never built the difference engine which means she never saw the software run but like they saw it like the the, the, the ideas existed and so anyway so by the 1930s there was this big debate that was already playing out and this is even before the invention of the computer and the big debate was, do we model the computer after a calculating machine, right? So do we model it after the card loom, the, the cash register, the player piano, or do we model it after the human brain? <laughs> and they knew just enough about neurology and the function of the human brain, and they knew the human brain was, they knew the human brain was obviously capable of doing things that a calculator, calculating machine couldn't do. And particularly they knew the human brain was really good at patterns, right? So the human brain is like really good at like image recognition, really good at like language. Like here, here's a feature of the human brain. You can take a piece of text, you can take out all the vowels, 
right? So you take a paragraph of text, uh, the person hasn't seen before, you remove all the vowels and you just leave the consonants. The human brain, you can still read that because your brain knows the patterns of words and letters and is able to fill that in. A calculating machine-based computer can't do that. The human brain can do that. So, so there's some difference. It's like sometimes the term fuzzy is used. So the, the human brain is fuzzy. And the problem with the human brain, by the way, is that it's fuzzy. And so like, I, I, will I remember tomorrow whether you were wearing that color shirt or some other color shirt? Like, who knows? But like, you and I will have been able to have this conversation in a way that a calculating machine never, never, never would have. And so there, there's the fundamental difference, right, basically in there. And so th these people in the 1930s knew that there was this difference. And so they said, should we model these things after a calculating machine in which they are hyper-literal? Like, all, you would say almost autistic, right? Which is like, they're just like, it's like savant-like machines where they're like really good at running large numbers of mathematical calculations very fast. And then we'll give people the ability to write programs based on that. But th they're never gonna be good at patterns. They're never gonna be good at language. They're never gonna be good at, they're never gonna know what anything means. You know, they're, they're always gonna be hard to talk to. You're never gonna be able to use natural language interface. You know, they're never gonna be able to know the difference between, you know, the, the difference between a cat and uh, a cinnamon roll in a photo. Like, they're just not gonna be good at that. So they'll be like hyper-literal in that way. And it's super fast, but hyper-literal, and then humans will just still be completely different. Or should we try to build computers that are modeled after the human brain? And, and so it actually turns out the, the first paper on the concept of the neural network which is the architecture of ChatGPT, was actually written in 1943. Wow. And the AI systems we use today are still based on the ideas in that paper. So it was just 80 years ago, right? So they knew enough about neuron structures and synapses in the brain that they knew there was different. 1943. 1943. No, but, but they knew. And by the way, look, the field of AI started in like 1943. Like that actually fired the starting gun. And actually people have worked for the last 80 years trying to get neural networks to work. And they finally just started to work. But my point is like, they, they knew from the very beginning there were these two totally different ways of making computers and they knew what the trade-offs were. And they just were, and it just turned out that historically they were able to make the one kind of computer for the last 80 years. And that created the computer as we know it today. And then it turns out there's this completely other way to make a computer and that's based on the, it's, it's inspired by, it's not the same as the brain, but it's inspired by the structure of the brain. And as a consequence, it's a new kind of computer. And a, a way to think about it is it's a computer that's actually, an AI computer is actually very bad at all the hyperliteral stuff, right? And so, for example, ChatGPT has this thing called, it hallucinates. And so if you ask it a question and it knows the answer, it gives you the answer. If it doesn't know the answer, it just makes one up. So it's more creative and less accurate. Exactly. Some, somebody once said, uh, somebody said, uh, one of the guys who studies this says, uh, AI is not like a computer, it's like a pretty good person. It's not like the best person. <laughs> But it's like a pretty good person. And what do we know about pretty good people? They're right a lot of the time. But a lot of the time they're not. And can you always tell the difference? Not necessarily. <laughs> you know, do they sound as confident when they're wrong as when they're right? Yeah. Do they know? No, they don't. If you ask. It sounds like a real issue. If yes. we've spent 80 years yeah. establishing the fact that what you're getting back from a computer is more like a results from the results from a calculator. Yeah. But now we're getting these fuzzy results. Yeah that are more like mediocre human results. Yeah. Even though we've had 80 years of what we think of as accurate, yeah. that could create confusion. Yes. So there was a court case about three months ago where a lawyer uh, had ChatGPT write a legal argument to be presented to a judge in a court. And it did it. And it hallucinated several court cases, precedents that don't exist. And the judge caught it. Just made them up. <laughs> made them up. Yeah. <laughs> And they sound great, by the way. They sound yeah. exactly like court cases. Yeah. The whole thing hangs together logically. It's just literally not true. It's based on cases that didn't mm -hmm. happen. And so, and it turns out if you submit false, made up court cases in court, you get disbarred as a lawyer. Like you're done being a lawyer. And so the judge basically like came very close to dis disbarring the lawyer yeah. on the spot. And the lawyer is like, basically, the, lawyer, the judge is like, did you use ChatGPT to do this? And the lawyer basically fessed up. And the judge basically said, if you ever do this again, I'm going to disbar you and destroy your career. Yeah. But, but it's, it's exactly for that reason. 
But, however, <laughs> hallucination, creativity. Yeah. Be a great scene in a movie, for example. Exactly. It would work fine in a movie. Well, so, and it actually turns out, so there, there are companies now building AI for lawyers. And, and actually, we, we, so we did a bunch of work. We haven't invested yet, but we've, did, we've done a bunch of work in this space because one of the things that AI can do is it can like write, can like, you can write legal briefs. And if it doesn't hallucinate, they're actually really good legal briefs. And so we, we've been talking to like professional lawyers about this. And what the, what the professional lawyers will tell you actually is you actually don't just want accuracy when you're thinking about writing legal briefs. You actually do want creativity because there are different ways to make legal arguments. And maybe the way that you've thought of on your own is not the best way to do it. And maybe if you had a co-pilot, right? Think of you're writing a legal brief. You're a lawyer. You have a legal brief. You're writing a legal brief. You have a co-pilot, right? And, and that co-pilot is just giving you ideas, right? And some of the ideas are going to be great ideas. Some of the ideas are going to be terrible ideas, but they're all new ideas. The ideas where you don't have to sit and come up with them on your own, right? And so... What the lawyers are saying basically is like in that case, you actually, you actually, you want some hallucinating, right? You, you, you don't want make up a court case that didn't happen, but you want, oh, here's a different way to make the same argument, mm-hmm. right? Or, or you might also view it as like if you're writing a closing argument to be presented to a jury like that, you know, as you know, it's like a storytelling exercise. And so mm-hmm. you might want actually, you know, some brainstorming. You don't want the thing to do it for you because you're the guy who has to stand up there and actually present it and you have to really be willing to stand behind it. But it might be helpful to have a writing partner that can actually help you do that. And so there, there's this sort of double-edged like the fact that it hallucinates is both a big problem, but it's also magical because we've never had computers that make things up before. Like that's a brand new thing. Mm-hmm. If you had told me three years ago, we're gonna have computers that like make up, like <laughs> it's never, it's never happened. There's never been a way to do that. Yeah. It's the same thing. And now you're seeing it. It's the way to see this really clearly, of course, is now visual design, visual art, you know, coming out of like mid journey or dolly or these things where it will make up all of these crazy art things. And, you know, look half the time it will make up like it will. And, you know, there's this famous thing, they've figured it out now, but for a long time, the way that you could tell that uh, computer art was being made by uh, an algorithm was um, it just, it would give everybody extra fingers. <laughs> it just turned out that the training data it was trained on is just like it just turns out like human bodies relatively straightforward except that there are these like detailed finger appendages and if you are looking at a billion photos or pictures of people they have fingers in all kinds of different positions and so the early versions of the ai art basically just didn't know how to do fingers accurately mm. they fixed that now right where it no longer does that yeah. but by the way if you want it to it still will mm-hmm. right and so if you tell it render me a scene where everybody has seven fingers it will happily do it for you and computers never used to be able to do that, right? Or if you just want to tell it to use its imagination. One of the things you can do that's really fun with these things is you can do it. You can say, like, use your imagination. Or, or you can say another thing you can do is you can say, so there's this thing called prompt engineering. So it, it's how do you write out the prompt that tells the AI what to do, right? So, which is true for both a text AI and for an image AI. Do the prompt. And it turns out there was this research thing done by Google a few, a few months back about what's the optimal prompt that, that optimizes the chance that there won't be hallucinations that it's going to be the most likely to be what's called factually grounded. And it turned out the optimal prompt starts with take a deep breath. Really? Yeah, it gives you the best results. Right, and, and, and so, and, and this gets to the, the, the amazingness of what's happening. This is why we're also transfixed by this. It doesn't have lungs. <laughs> no, it, can't, it doesn't breathe. It doesn't breathe. All right. So it's not that. But, but also, look, if I tell you, if I ask you a complicated question, I say take a deep breath, I'm also not telling you to take a deep breath. What I'm saying is pause and think, right? What that's code for is pause and think. So it's like, okay, so what you're telling the computer is pause and think. Okay, that makes more sense because, okay, pause and think. But then it's like, wait a minute, why do I have to tell a computer to pause and think? Like, why would that matter? So it turns out why that matters is because the way these systems are built is they're trained on these, these you know, giant billions and billions and billions of files of text and images that other people have created over time throughout all of human history. Like all that stuff's been fit in there. And it just turns out that 
in the total material of all texts that everybody's ever written on any topic, anytime anybody ever says, take a deep breath, pause and think, it means that they're more careful in how they do their work. Right, and, and they actually act differently in how they do their work. They go more slowly, they go step by step, they double check all their assumptions. And so that's like encoded deeply in the sort of total collective unconsciousness of how we express describing human thoughts such that when you tell the machine to do that, it kicks it into a very similar mode as that. Very interesting. And this, and everything I just described, I would have been like committed to an institution five years ago if I had said that this is what we were going to be doing. And now yeah. all of a sudden this is actually happening. And so that's the, yeah. So the, the, the breakthrough is computer, a completely different kind of computer that is able to basically synthesize and deal with patterns in, in, in human, ex, human and human-related expression, language and photos and like images and videos and all these things, right, that, that humans deal with, eyes and ears, like all this stuff, in like a fundamentally like better way that is based on and analogous to how human brains operate, but also very different. And, and so it's like, this, it's like this, this, this brand new frontier. Tell me the open AI story. It started as a non-profit, not-for-profit. It, it is, and it continues to be a non-profit. Tell me that story, because there was a story about it becoming a for-profit. Yeah, so it's a it's a there, it's a nonprofit that owns a for-profit. So it's a it's a nonprofit parent company with a for-profit subsidiary. Is it a common? No, uh, that is not common. Um, has it ever happened? Before? It has happened before. Yes. What What was the? Case uh, I'll give you an example. The Guardian newspaper in the UK yes. is owned by a trust. Johnson and Johnson, the consumer products company, I believe, is owned by a nonprofit. I think the Lego company, I think, is owned by a nonprofit. I'd have to double check all these, but I think, I think these are all examples. There, there have been a bunch of examples like this. So it has, it, has, it has happened before. It is allowed. Having said that, there are very stringent tax laws that apply to this because you're not allowed. Nonprofits are not allowed to pay like high salaries. They're not allowed to, you're not allowed to do what's called self-dealing. You're not allowed to like, extract money out the other end because the whole point of being a nonprofit is you don't have to pay taxes. And so the IRS supervises nonprofits that own businesses actually quite, quite strictly. Um, and, th and there have been people who go to jail when they, when they cross those lines. So you have to be careful in how you do this. But yeah, so basically uh, OpenAI started out as a nonprofit research institute. Uh, it actually didn't even start with the for-profit sub. It just started with a, as a nonprofit. It actually started, it was started by Elon Musk um, and a group of people kind of that Elon brought together, including Sam Altman, who's now the CEO. Um, is he the CEO? He is sitting here today. He is once again. Today he is the CEO. Today he is once again the CEO. So he was fired and rehired. He was fired and rehired within five days. That's interesting. And they had two other CEOs in the meantime. Maybe you'll tell me that story <laughs> yeah. when we'll get there in the in the history. Sure. Yeah. It just it just yeah. happened. Uh, yeah. So basically, and so, and, and, and so the, the the true story. Elon has talked about this now in public. So basically, what happened was Elon. So, so Google, Google obviously makes all their money on the search engine, but the, the guys who started Google, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, were, came out of the AI group at Stanford, and so they, they got trained up on all this AI stuff when it wasn't even working, right? They just, it was, they, they got Pre trained Pre-Google? Uh, they, they, were, they were PhD students at Stanford studying AI before they built Google. And so their, their kind of orientation in the world is basically AI. And they, they basically always viewed Google as like a simple form of AI. And so, but they always aspired, like if you read their interviews, they always said Google shouldn't have the 10 blue links. It should just give you the answer. They, they always, and, and so they started doing AI research early on at that company when it first got started and they did it for many years. Yeah, so they, they basically launched an internal research group called Google Brain. They launched that, I don't know, 15 years ago or something. And the goal basically was to develop AI. And they actually developed the actual breakthrough, uh, the specific version of the neural network that makes all these systems work now. It's called the transformer. And that was actually invented by a guy, two guys I know, wonderful guys, in 2017. And so that was like the key theoretical breakthrough that like finally made, made all this stuff work. 
but they were was it owned by Google? Yeah. Well, it, no. So it was a re, it was this was considered research, not development. And so okay. the, the 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 way that it was it was like an internal scientific unit at a company, and so they actually published it as a paper. I see. Uh, and and there actually there's a long history of this where this actually a lot of the great breakthroughs over time have actually come out of like industrial research labs like this, and then they, then and then the, the company that develops it publishes it, and then they don't realize until later that they should have kept it secret. <laughs> but but also the reason that they were able to hire all these great researchers out of all these universities is they promised them that they could publish their work. Right, and so it was sort of part of the deal with these guys was that they would get to publish. So they, they had this key breakthrough in 2017. So, but but it sort of became clear in the 2010s that like there was finally progress being made, and that some of these systems were going to start to work. And uh, Elon had some conversation with Larry Page, who was running Google at the time. And uh, Larry said to Elon, you know, this AI thing's really going to work, and we're going to end up with AIs that are like you know much you know smarter, more powerful than people. And Elon said, well, aren't you worried that they're going to like have their own take goals over. and they're going to take over and they're not going to want us around anymore? And Larry's Larry's response was. You're being speciesist. You're being racist, but towards your species. And if they're a better form of life, then they should take over and we should all die. And humanity should go away. Now, knowing Larry, I think there's at least a 50% chance he was joking. But Elon couldn't tell and took him seriously. And so Elon had a visceral reaction and was like, oh my God, like the big risk here is not just developing AI. The big risk here is Google develops AI and Larry Page is in control of it. Um, and he does horrible, horrible things. And so he started, he's like, oh, so he called all these people who he knew. Um, and he said, we need to start the competitive effort to that today. And we need to call it, we, it needs to be, as opposed to Google's closed AI, it needs to be open AI. And, and this was to protect the world. To protect the world. In, in, in Elon's view, it's to protect the world. So what Elon says is we need to go hire all the best researchers we can. It seems to be that's what he's always done. Yeah. It's like Tesla was, cars need to be electric. SpaceX was... If anything happens to the Earth, we could live on Mars. Mm -hmm. He's always motivated by saving the planet. Yeah, that's right. And 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 saving and humanity. Specific, and humanity, right? Exactly. And saving humanity. Yeah, no, I think that's true. Look, I mean, Tesla has been a climate story the whole time, and, and still is. For sure, from the beginning, it was. Yeah. yeah, that's right. In fact, Tesla, as you know, like Tesla isn't just cars; they're also batteries, right? Yeah. They also do. And he also, I remember him from the beginning of the first Tesla announcement was, and I'm hoping. Every car company steals our technology. That's right. That's right. No patents. He open sources everything. Exactly. The, so it's for everyone. Yeah. It was always for everyone. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's right. And so that's what he did here. And then what, what he did basically was he said, look, if you're interested, if you're an AI researcher and you're interested in money, then you can go to work at Google and they can pay you a lot of money. But if you if you care about the mission of having it be open, then come and work with me. And he and he called it OpenAI, mm -hmm. and he made it a nonprofit, mm -hmm. not a for profit. And he said, you know, and then he said basically, he said everything we do at OpenAI is going to be open sourced in, in the same way, um, right? So he said basically, if you come here, your work is all going to get published. Everything's going to be open. He, he even said early on, he said the mission of OpenAI is to make sure that AI is is is, is, is happens and is safe and is universally available to all of humanity. And he said it would actually be fine if somebody else does that and makes it available. In which case, OpenAI will just shut down and it'll be our mission will be complete. Okay. So it was, it was set up as a nonprofit. It was registered as a nonprofit. He donated it, what it's reported to be something like $50 million to get it off the ground. And, and then uh, a, group of, a group of people, including Ilana Sam Altman and others, then brought in a lot of these people, the Greg, these names now, uh, Greg Brockman and Ilya Sutskever and a bunch of these like really smart guys. And they formed this thing and they got underway. And then basically, it's a, it's a long story, a long detailed story. But in, in the beginning, this was like 2014 or 2015. They didn't have the transformer yet. So they didn't know how to make like ChatGPT work. They were primarily working on trying to have AIs that can play video, video games in those days as sort of a proxy for being able to make decisions and so forth. But it like didn't go that well, and so it was sort of start and stop, and some things worked and some things didn't. And, and so it was kind of, you know, kind of a little bit kind of iffy along the way as to whether it would work. 
And then basically at some point stuff really started to work. Like the, the things all started to actually perform really well. And then in particular, there was this breakthrough. There was the large language model breakthrough. And the way I've heard the story is there was one guy there whose name is Alec Radford, who had this idea for these language models. And the rest of the organization thought he was nuts and didn't want him to do it. And he's like, no, I think we might actually be able to make this thing work. And this transformer thing came out. And then they started to get, then they did GPT-1, which was the first version of the text LLM. And then they were like, and then they did GPT-2 and they were like, okay, this is really going to be a thing. And then basically what happened at, at, like around that time is this guy, Sam Altman, basically came. He, was a, he had been sort of an original founder, but he'd kind of disengaged and then he kind of came back in and uh, sort of he took control of it. Elon, there's controversy over this, but Elon... Elon became less involved. Sam, Sam took control of it. And then Sam did this very important thing, which is he created a for-profit subsidiary under the nonprofit. And why did he do that? Um, so what he, what he said, and, and I'm sure this is true, um, what he said was to make these large language models work, we need a lot of com computer capacity um, and we need a lot of data. Um, and, and we're going to need to, we're gonna need billions of dollars. Basically, he said, I know how to raise $100 million for, for nonprofits. I don't know how to raise $10 billion for nonprofits. It's just hard to do that. Not many of those running around. So he said, we're going to create a for-profit subsidiary so that we can basically sell shares in that for-profit subsidiary right, and generate revenue and generate profits. And then, then that, that's what will let us raise the money, because if we can't raise the money, we won't be able to keep going on this research. Which means, by the way, ultimately it will all be done by an actual for-profit company, right? Like Google or Microsoft, and then it won't open, open AI won't win. And so he turned a he turned what had been a pure nonprofit into a nonprofit that owns a for profit. The employees of the nonprofit became employees of the for profit. Salaries went up a lot. <laughs> the amount of money that they raised went up a lot. The, their their ability to invest went up a lot. What was Elon's participation for the original fifty million? Uh, so Elon has said publicly that he got nothing for it. What he says is he it was a philanthropic donation. You're under tax laws. You can't just turn a for-profit. You can't just turn a non-profit into a for-profit, right? Because it's a violation of tax laws. And mm -hmm. so I, I, I think legally they probably couldn't give him anything. But anyway, he says he, he says he got nothing for it. And, it's interesting. And he he has said in public basically he's like, wow, that seems like a neat trick. Why why doesn't everybody do it? Yeah. And so he's he has suggested over the over the years that like there was something wrong with how they did this, and mm -hmm. you know, who knows? We'll see. But Sam made that change. And, and by the way, that worked, right? They were, able to, they were able to all of a sudden start paying competitive salaries to Google for engineers. They were able to buy all the computer power they needed. They were able to buy, they have, you know, they have lots of money going into making training data. And so like that, that part of it worked. And that's what resulted in ChatGPT. That's why ChatGPT exists and that's why Dolly exists. Um, he did another thing along the way, which was he, he, he turned it basically into closed AI. So he, 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 he turned it into a for-profit and he canceled the part where it publishes everything. And basically, as of four years ago or five years ago or so, they stopped publishing their research. And he did that under the theory that it's too dangerous to distribute. Uh, it's, too, it's too powerful, too dangerous, and other people can't, can't have it. But it, there's some irony in that, which is the whole reason OpenAI exists is because that was what they were, Elon and Sam were afraid that Google was going to do, right? So, so, so anyway, so it's, 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 it's been this rather dramatic you know, kind of shift. Why was Sam removed and then replaced? So we don't fully know yet. You know, they're, they're a relatively opaque organization. A bunch of stuff has been reported. You never quite know, you know whether what's reported is true or not. Um, there are going to be many investigations in the months and years ahead you know, from government, and there's going to be litigated lawsuits. And there's going to be a lot of, there's going to be, by the way, there's going to be multiple books written about this already underway. There's going to be a Netflix series, I'm sure. Right? And so we're, we, we, will, we will learn a lot in the, in the years ahead about what just happened. And uh, is Microsoft somehow involved? Microsoft is very involved. How, how is Microsoft? Microsoft involved? is their major investor. And so they have raised, In the for-profit. In the for-profit. And mm -hmm. so they have raised $13 billion from Microsoft into the for-profit. And, and, and they have this very elaborate, complicated structure. So they now have this structure. They're still a nonprofit at the parent company level. 
but they have this for-profit subsidiary and they have this very complicated system for how they account for investor money versus donation money and how things get paid out. It's what they have this new structure they've invented called cap return. So if you invest money in the for-profit, you get paid out up to like a 10x return on your investment. And then after that, the profits all go back to the nonprofit. There's what's called a waterfall. So different investors investing at different times get precedence for how the money comes out. And then Microsoft's just the vast majority of the money. So they have tremendous control. Uh, they have you know, kind of the most outside control of anybody. You know, but it's a nonprofit. They're, they can't operate as just a business. And so they've got this additional nonprofit overlay. All investors who invested in this thing over the years uh, signed paperwork that very specifically said you are investing in a for-profit sub of a nonprofit. It would be best if you thought of this as a donation, not a financial investment. And then they say, but, you know, that's probably okay because who knows whether there will even be money once we have AI anyway. And that's like literally in the document, right? <laughs> and so like everybody's invested, who's invested in this has kind of known, you know, that, that that's the deal. But then they have this additional thing that they are very kind of vocal about and public about, which is this idea of AI safety. And this idea, this, you know, the original concern of like, is AI going to like basically wake up and like destroy everything and take over and wipe out humanity or, or, or just cause damage in, you know, one of a thousand other ways. And so they also have this thing built into their, into their structure, which basically says if AI, if they conclude AI is too dangerous, they'll basically just like shut the whole thing down. Right. But and what, it, where's the line of dangerous? That is a very good question. Um, that is a, that is a question that every expert in the field has a different opinion on. There is heated controversy. Uh, over it. I, I am on the side of what's known as the accelerationists. I think there basically either is not a line or if there is, it's so far out in the distance, it's not worth thinking about and we're nowhere close to it. And we shouldn't worry about this. There are a lot of people that are called safetyists um, or that sometimes get referred to as the doomers who are convinced that the line is like already, like we're almost there and we might trip it at any moment. There was a news story yesterday that I don't know if it's true, but it suggests that there were a group of people inside OpenAI that basically blew the whistle and you know hit the red button and said it, it just got too dangerous and we need to kill it right now. Um, and so there's reports that this played a major role in, in Sam getting in Sam getting fired. You know, there's irony to that because in the wake of Sam getting fired, they all decided that they were going to go work for Microsoft, which is just a you know big for-profit company that presumably is not going to care as much about safety. So if if this is such a concern that they're going to fire Sam over it and shut it down. Why are they all going to go to Microsoft, which is probably even more dangerous? And then uh, Ilya, the chief scientist, actually flipped. He reversed himself. He, he actually fired Sam. He was on the board, and he's the guy who fired Sam. And then 24 hours later, he reversed and actually said that he actually wants Sam back. And so there's this debate over why he changed his mind. And was it because he decided Microsoft was more dangerous than, than Sam? So this is like a whole, this has been the drama. So this has been the thing that's been consuming the industry for the last week. It's been this spectacular, amazing, you know, kind of just like, you know, meltdown resurrection. <laughs> kind of thing that's happened. Every question that you just asked, the question you just asked just remains a very open question, which is like, okay, again, based purely on the reporting, have they, have they discovered? So the reporting basically is that they've discovered for the first time a self-improvement loop. So the, the, the claim is that they've, they've discovered a loop that basically where the AI can improve itself. And the AI safety doomer people, safety is the polite word, doomer is the pejorative. Now, those people basically say, if you have an AI that can improve itself, then it will inevitably become all-powerful because it will improve itself and then improve itself and then improve itself, compounding all the way up. And they call this the takeoff scenario. And the takeoff scenario basically is you get into an improvement loop and like within, you know, conceivably 12 hours, it's become super god, <laughs> right? And it, it takes complete control of nuclear weapons and you have Skynet and like the whole thing. What's really interesting about it is because it's built on human models and the way humans work <laughs> if a group of humans had ultimate power and could press a button that would turn off half of the world that would likely happen well 
Most human stories, the good guys win. Most human stories, when the bad guys win, we call it a tragedy, and we feel bad about it. You know, isn't that, I mean, the good guys wrote all the history books. Hard to the know. The good guys that. wrote all the history books. Impossible um, to know who the good guys are. We have eight billion people on the planet today. You know, far more than ever before. You know, the world has never ended, despite the threats of many apocalypses over time. Oppenheimer. You know, the nuclear weapons. You know, the whole point of Oppenheimer is nuclear weapons are going to destroy everything. Nuclear weapons didn't destroy everything. Nuclear weapons actually probably prevented World War III. Right, so it turns out developing the developing the doomsday device thus, thus far, thus far, yes, thus far, exactly, one hundred percent, thus far, right, exactly. Well, but like, look, if you had just been through World War, we've forgotten how bad World War II was. If you yeah. had just been through World War II, like the expectation of all the military planners in the nineteen fifties was World War III was right around the corner and it was mm-hmm. going to be a land war in Europe uh, against the Soviets and it was going to kill two hundred million people. <laughs> and, and look, we still have troops in, in Germany for that reason, like eighty years later, because we thought the Russians were going to invade. Right, and, and, and that, what was, that looks like what was gonna happen. Like I think most historians are like, yeah, that was highly likely to happen. And basically it was only the threat of global destruction. In World War II, the Russian, we were on the same side as Russia. We, exactly, we were. And then that flipped hard in the, in the years that followed. Very hard. Well, and, and look, there, you know, there's all kinds of questions around this. Like we, we don't even, I don't even think we have like a good history of what happened in the 20th century. Look, the Nazis were very, very bad. The communists killed even more people. Right, like, you know, look, we turned over half of Europe to the Soviets and they turned it in, you know, they brought down the Iron Curtain and they killed many millions of people and imposed into a horrible dictatorship and like surveillance society. And, you know, East Germany is just a fucking nightmare, right, of what they did to those people. And we did that all to protect them from, you know, and so yes, good news is we protect from the Nazis. Bad news is we turn them over to communists. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's like some big, like, I, the idea that there was anything morally pure or clear about World War II, I think is just like completely fake, right? It's just only because we have this mythology around it. Like, it, it, uh, like, you know, I don't know. Like, it seems like it ended very, very badly. And, and I'm not saying, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm far from saying that we shouldn't have done it, but like, I, mm-hmm. I, you know, have you really achieved a great moral victory when the guy who killed more people is the guy who wins? Right? Like, <laughs> like how's that going, right? And we spent the next 50 years, like, literally terrified that there was going to be, you know, some combination of either World War III or nuclear Armageddon. And then the plot twist is the threat of nuclear Armageddon probably prevented World War III, right? And so, right, exactly. Right. And so, like, okay, that's in our history. Like, that's real. Yeah, so look, like, AI is going to get trained up on that, right? Now, by the way, the other thing is it's very easy to, it's very easy to anthropomorphize AI. It's very easy to impute. Well, all it knows is what humans... That's true, but also it doesn't know things the way we know things. So it, it's it's not a brain. Um, it's modeled after the brain, but it's not a brain. It, it, it'll give, I'll give you a bunch, bunch of differences. So it, it hasn't been evolved. Um, so so you and I are the result of four billion years of, of evolution where it's been a pitch battle for, for survival across that overwhelming period of time, right? And why, do, why are human beings so crazily violent and always killing each other? It's because that was four billion years of evolution said, you just like, you're fucking trying to kill the other guy because if not, he's going to kill you and eat you. Right? And so like, Every living organ- organism is the result of four billion years of biological pressure inclined towards violence. AIs are not like that at all. Like they, they, they have none of, they're not evolved. They're programmed. None of them are programmed like that way. And so they, they don't work like that at all. You know, look, whatever there is to like a human spirit or soul or personality or a sense of consciousness or identity, the machine doesn't have that at all. Like when ChatGPT is not answering. But it. maybe that's the thing that saves us. The soul. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yep. It, it's, if it's got all of human thought yeah. without the soul, mm-hmm. seems dangerous. I don't know. Well, so here's the other thing, though. Like, you can also test this. Like, you, one of the interesting things about... So the, the fictional portrayals of AI are all basically... They're, they're all, I think... They're actually inspired by, like, fascist Nazi aesthetics and ideology. The assumption is they're going to militarize, right? It's like Sky, Terminator is like the case study of this. It's like, you know, basically the Skynet is basically the machine version of Nazis. 
right? And it's even in the in the iconography and the chrome and the the the, the steel and the machinery and the evil pure malevolence and the red eyes and the concentration you know, concentration camps in the movies. <laughs> And the death machines and like all this stuff and you know in the matrix it's like they're literally harvesting you know human biological essence for energy like you know so it's it's all this like fascist like top down like death machine kind of thing but when you actually use these systems that's not how they act at all in fact generally the way they come across when i use them is they're very curious they're very open-minded and by the way, they're happy to engage in moral arguments. And so you can ask them lots of questions about like, what is the proper way to live a life? What is the proper way to organize a society? And you might agree or disagree with what they tell you, but like they're pretty, it's pretty representative of what most people have said over time. And it's kind of like, they'll you know happily tell you that generally speaking, people should be nice to each other. And generally speaking, people should respect each other's differences. Like it's not Sky, like it's not Terminator. It's, it's something else, right? And, and, and what is that something else? It, it, to your point, it, it's the composite of all of human experience. But also, it's not, this is a very important, there's no, yeah. there's no it in the way that we think about it. Yeah. There's no person, there's no, yeah. there's no little person in there. Yeah. There's no, there's no. I understand. Right? It's not there. So I understand. There's a, no point of view. Another way of thinking about it is what it's doing is it's generating Netflix scripts. Mm-hmm. It's generating Netflix scripts. Stories. On, stories. It's, it's generating stories, stories on demand. Storytelling machine. All it wants to do is tell you a story that you're going to like. Mm-hmm. Tell me the different categories of software between the internet and my eyes. <laughs> Everything, what are all of those things that happen? What are all the different processes that happen? Yeah. Software wise, like yeah. using Netscape as yeah. an example of one of the pieces, yeah. but it's not all the pieces. Yeah. So, what does what? What are all the pieces you need? Yeah. So, somewhere there's a piece of, so say there's a piece of content, and you're looking at a web page, that content is stored in a storage system somewhere. So, stored in a hard drive somewhere. It's stored, that is managed by a computer called a server. That could be a, literally a computer sitting in a closet somewhere, or it could be on, on, in a cloud, which is basically just a giant collection of computers, kind of run as, run as a big grid. And then there's, there's, there's the hardware, server, computer, and storage. And then there's this, what's called server software. So, there's the software that gets the request for the content. And then responds with a request. There that is, software would be built into that system, though. It's not a. It's not an added-on piece. Yeah, it's a. It's a, it's a there's, there's server software. It's called a web server piece of software, which would run on a server computer. So, so, so the server. So usually the terminology we use is client server. So client is like what the user uses, and the server is like what's running in the background somewhere. Okay. And so when I say server, that both means that can mean both the hardware itself of a computer in a closet somewhere, or it can mean a piece of software running on that computer that does server-like functions mm-hmm. that tells it how to be a server, basically. So there's server software running up in the cloud. And that's always connected to the server. So. It wouldn't be a general one that you would talk to other servers. It would only talk to that server, the software. So the the simplest case is just a single computer, a single server computer with a single piece of server software on it. Now, in practice, most of what you have today is much more complicated than that. These systems have evolved to become a lot more powerful. And so probably what's actually happening, like if you're looking at a web page today, is probably you're accessing the server is a cloud of like a million computers. And you're just hitting randomly one of those computers versus another one. And there's a network switch that's balancing across the million other people that are trying to access the same content at the same time. So it's, it's become a very elaborate, you know, plate spinning exercise on the back end. And there's these giant businesses like Amazon Web Services that, uh, that, that manage all that. But it's still the same. What you experience is still the same thing. There, as far as you're concerned, it's just yeah. a server. It's just giving you content. There's probably two really critical um, other things that happen back there. One is there's a lot of work that goes into making this fast. 
And so there's, there's, there's this process called caching. And so like there's probably a, another server that is actually closer to you that's like at the telecom company that uses your wireless, wireless provider that has like a copy of that content already on it so that it doesn't have to actually go all the way up. And so there's, there's what's called caching systems performance systems. And then there's all these security systems. You know, the servers can get attacked, right? There's lots of hackers that want to like break in or disable these systems. And so they, these days they have all these defense mechanisms to be able to fend off cyber attacks. What would they want? What would a hacker want to get into it for? Uh, so a, cu a couple of things. One is to get a lot of it is to try to get the user data. Uh, so to try to get your name and password and credit card number um, or theft. theft, or they might want to maliciously change the content, deface it, you know, graffiti artist it um, digitally. Or they might just want to destroy, they might want to actually take that, that server offline. They might not want it to exist anymore. Um, and what, what they do when they don't want it to exist anymore is the bad guys will do what's called a denial of service attack, which is a DOS or DOS attack. And basically that means that the, the bad guys basically set up, you know, a large number of hostile computers to just barrage the server with like too many requests and cause it to basically melt down. And so there's all these elaborate systems. Uh, by the way, the Chinese government does this. Uh, so the, the, the Chinese government has the great- How do we know that? And we know that because it's, it's now been well-documented. So um, one of our companies was the first company that experienced this. Um, so the Chinese have what's called the Great Firewall, which prevents their, their citizens from looking outside. The Great Firewall consists of millions of computers that are being used for censorship and filtering. They have a capability to turn the Great Firewall into something we call the Great Cannon. And so they can turn it into an outward bound attack. Wow. And it's so big and so powerful that it can overwhelm uh, any sort of small internet company. Um, and even for the big internet companies, this can be hard to fight off. And so there's actually these pitched, there's almost these pitched digital wars that take place where the Chinese or others- Is this happening all the time yeah. or it's on occasion? Well, the Chinese aren't always doing it, but there's, there's always denial of service attacks. Somebody's always trying to do it. So it's, it's actually not that expensive to run a denial of service attack. You might even just do it for commercial competition reason. You know, it's Christmas, you're competing with somebody. If you're nefarious, right, what you would do is you would basically mount a denial of service attack against your competitor's website so that they couldn't sell anything, right? And I, I'm sure that's happened too, right? And then um, there are these things called botnets. Um, and so one of the things that computer viruses do is if your, if your computer gets a virus, it gets basically recruited into a botnet and your computer ends up getting used to do these attacks. Or by the way, your toaster, wow, <laughs> or your fridge, wow, right? Um, so there, there's this like, yeah. So there's this like, there's this digital war that's kind of constantly taking place. Constant. Ha oh, North North Korea does a lot of hacking. They do a lot of hacking for financial reasons. They they fund a lot of the their military through uh, hacking for financial crimes, and then they they hire um, third party uh, hacker rings on the internet to to do it for them. And so, and then there's now, there, and then by the way, there's also like mass propaganda efforts. And so a lot of nation states now have what they call covert influence teams where they're, you know, and then that form of the attack is to upload lots of fake content, right? And to try to overwhelm the, you know, the real content or, or, or whatever, you know, whatever, right? Uh, like cre create lots of fake accounts. And so they're, they're, whenever you are, these days, whenever you are doing that, your computer is kind of maneuvering very elegantly through this kind of digital firestorm wow. that's happening all the time. And so you generally never notice it, but it is actually happening. But the, the amount of brain power and computer hardware that has been spent over the last 20 years trying to get these systems to be good at repelling all these attacks is actually quite, quite staggering. It's like this, this whole par parallel kind of cyber, cyber war that's taking wow. place. And of course, this is just the very beginning. Like these, yeah, these, the these wars stage. are going to get like much more intense in the years ahead. Yeah. We, we haven't yet had like a full, basically like military war that's been accompanied by a cyber war. But like what, you know, what everybody's worried about is like, okay, like if, if for somebody in Russia were to decide to invade Germany, for example, would the first thing they do is take down the German power grid? You know, I don't know, maybe, right? And so, um, you know, or, or, or basically, or, you know, maybe hack into all the self-driving cars and cause them to all drive off the road. 
or crash into each other, right? And so there, there's real world consequences more and more to, you know, to, to all these things. So anyway, so that's what's happening on the outside. Mm -hmm. um, and then basically you've got your, you know, Wi-Fi or whatever here or your cell connection. And then you've got your computer and then your, your computer correspondingly, your iPhone or your Mac has, you know, many layers of software to basically deal with all that, download the content, render the content for you. You know, that takes place in the web browser, you know, usually or the operating system somewhere and present it to you in a good way and then let you interact with it. And so that, that, that's what's called the client so side. all client. there is is the browser on your side? Or is there more than a browser? Yeah, well, the browsers have gotten very complicated, right? And so correspondingly, the browsers are also now very sophisticated. And so, for example, your I'll give you an example. Your browser has all sorts of security countermeasures in it also itself. And so if you download a piece of content that's been compromised and has like a malicious worm or virus inside it, your browser and your operating system have ways of detecting that and, 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 and preventing uh, you know, that from infecting your system. So it's got that. It's got all kinds of things in there for performance, making everything fast. It's got you know things in there for dealing with video and music. On the simplest level, mm -hmm. forgetting the war aspects of it, yeah. even though those are real world concerns, yeah. the actual connection is pretty simple. It's a server mm -hmm. talking to a browser yeah, that right? yeah. over the internet. Yeah. And you can still do exactly that. Like you, you, you can still run it exactly that way. That still works. In, in practice, nobody does that anymore because it's all gotten much more sophisticated behind the scenes, but not in a way that you would ever notice. If all of the other complicated stuff is doing its job right, you never notice that it even exists. And so you, you experience fundamentally the same thing you would have 20 years ago. And it's, it's part of the magic that's taken place. Like there's, there's a huge amount of plumbing that's been built that makes all this work that is just kind of, you know, we're, you know many hundreds of thousands of very smart engineers have spent 20 years. Yeah. You know, and big, huge industries have been built trying to get this stuff to work. By the way, it's all going to get, another thing is going to get more complicated. So AI is now going to get used for planning and executing cyber attacks. And AI is also going to get used for defending against them, right? And so a, a browser three years from now will have an AI built into it that'll be doing cyber defense for you. And again, you may never know that that's even happening, but it will be kind of doing that on your behalf. How much time do you spend on YouTube? Uh, quite a bit, quite a lot. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing, um, it's a, I mean, you know, I'm, for me, it's almost entirely long form. You know, it's, discuss, it's discussions, podcasts, even audiobooks, but it's just like the repository of information knowledge on YouTube. It's just, yeah, incredibly staggering. And then actually a lot of music. I do a lot of music listening on YouTube now. Has it replaced other forms of visual media? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah. Less television, less movies, more YouTube? Well, no, I don't watch, so I don't watch YouTube. My, my, so my, my eight-year-old watches YouTube in preference to television movies. Yeah. Um, I don't do that. If I'm watching television or movie, I want a very specific experience. It's usually with friends or at the end of the day, and I want to watch, you know, whatever is the best new movie or whatever. Um, so I'm not like, I, I'm, I, I just don't have the mode of like sitting and watching YouTube videos or TikTok videos the way that a lot of people do. And it's just frankly, a, it's a lack of time. <laughs> I'm sure it would be very fun. But for me, it's basically, it's actually mostly actually for YouTube is audio content. Mostly for me, it's an audio source. So I, I'm, I, I'm an audiobook podcast, spoken word guy, you know, like two hours a day, you know, driving around and running around and doing everything, getting ready in the morning. And so it's usually either I'm listening to a YouTube slash podcast or an audiobook. Hmm. But, you, but YouTube has been taking a bigger and bigger share of that. What was the piece you wrote recently, The Optimist? What was it called? The Techno Optimist Manifesto. Techno Optimist Manifesto. Please explain it to me. Yes. It's both radical and not radical at all. <laughs> so this is my history uh, obsession comes in. So um, it's very radical in that it, just, it says these things that have become very radical, which is technology is overwhelmingly net good. Capitalism is overwhelmingly net good. 
And basically, the more technology and the more capitalism we get, the better things are going to get. And I describe sort of in detail why that's the case. I describe in detail what the arguments are against that and why I think that they're wrong. I also describe, by the way, the limits to that position, um, the things that I'm also not claiming. But it's basically a, you know, it's a call to arms for the kinds of people who build new products, build new technologies, build new companies. You know, I describe right up front in the piece that basically I think we have all been on the receiving end of a demoralization campaign for the last 15 years to basically convince us that all these things are bad and evil. And I think it's basically, you know, people, it's a demoralization campaign is being run by people who are very threatened by change and people who are very resentful and bitter. And we should not let them demoralize us into not making things better. And so, yeah, I, re I really kind of went to town. I was inspired by a lot of prior manifestos, um, one in particular that I enjoy tremendously, which is the Futurist Manifesto from uh, the Italian Futurist uh, art movement in the, like around 1910. So I, I don't know that I, I don't know that I, I hit the bar of the Futurist Manifesto, but that was kind of my... That was my sort of uh, inspirational uh, kind of starting point. Um, and of course, that was an artistic aesthetic movement, not a technological movement, but it was at a time when they were very obsessed with new technologies and what new technologies would mean for art. So I, hopefully I got a little bit of that flavor in there. When is technology a net negative? Yeah, so, <laughs> so when it kills a lot of people, when it, you know, basically when it causes misery, right? So, you know, look, fire, you know, I, I talk in the manifesto, like all of our both optimism and fear of technology is embedded in the myth of Prometheus who is the God that brought fire down from the mountain to man. Fire is the life giver. Fire is the source of light and heat and cooks food and serves as, you know, warmth at night and scares off the wolves and um, it allows us to mount, you know, defense. Fire is also a means of attack and you can use fire to burn somebody to death. You can burn down an entire city. You can fire flaming arrows. I've been reading about uh, the history of uh, Middle East stuff, and they, uh, they, one of the reasons that they discovered there was oil in the Middle East is because they were the, the, the Arabs of that region were early adopters of napalm. In the mid 1800s, they discovered a way to basically take petro, you know, chemical, uh, petrochemical um, substances, and, and basically make, uh, you know, essentially early napalm with them. <laughs> so, like, a lot of people died by fire. And I mean, look, like, what is ammunition? You know, what's a, you know, we read about shelling taking place somewhere. You know, that's bomb. They're setting off bombs. Fire is the weapon of, of a bomb. Fire is the weapon of, a, you know, the catalyst for a bullet. Um, fire. So it's a huge power source. Fire is, you know, what does a nuclear weapon do? It generates fire, right? And so it, it's it's like it's all in there, you know. But but the, the thing is, like, you can say that basically, like, it's really easy to same thing. Like, I'm drinking water. You can drown in water. Uh, you know, you can use a shovel to dig a well. You can use a shovel to close somebody to death. It's a tool. Yeah. And I won't go so far as to say tools are value neutral in that, you know, they carry consequences with them. And specifically, uh, they carry consequences to the ordering of human society, which is ultimately the thing that's being litigated when we talk about all this stuff. But uh, that said, they tend to have both use cases. And it is, you know, uh, it, it is arguably easy to get carried away and just assume that it's only upsides. And I think it's also very easy to get carried away and to say that it's mostly downsides. I think most arguments about technology are not actually arguments about the technology. I think they're arguments about the ordering of society. I think most people opposed to technological change are not actually opposed to the technology per se. They're opposed to what they see as a diminishment of their own status and power. I think that's why the, you know, the news industry is so anti-tech is because they view it as a challenge to their own, you know, their traditional gatekeeping role and their, their, their historical businesses. You know, look, is societal change good or bad? You know, it depends, right? <laughs> you know, we, we, we are all very happy we don't live in the societies ordered the way that they were 4,000 years ago. Like, that would suck. But like, you know, is all societal change good? You know, probably not. We, we live in a society today where suicides are rising. Well, okay, something's going wrong, <laughs> right? Like, and you know, so what caused that to happen? Anyway, so I, maybe, uh, I, I think all of the important questions around technology are actually questions about society, which are questions about people. 
Um, but if we use the fear of societal change and paranoia about technology to prevent progress, I think that leads to stagnation. And I think that creates problems that are almost certainly worse. I'd actually link it to politics. I'd link to politics. This is not a right-wing or left-wing observation, but basically what you find is when societies grow, they tend to have a positive-sum mentality, right, where some people can rise without it being a threat to everybody because everybody kind of views that there's opportunity. When societies aren't growing, you get zero-sum politics, right? For me to get something, I have to take it away from you. And I, and I think what, what happened basically is our society downshifted to a slower uh, rate of technological development and a slower rate of growth in the 1960s, 1970s. And I think that's culminated in basically zero-sum politics, both on the American left and on the American right, where, where they've gotten increasingly negative and hostile and, you know, kind of destructive. And, and so to me, like the clear answer to anybody who doesn't like the way politics in the U.S. are going, the clear answer is we need growth. To get growth, we need technology. Like that is the actual answer. Whether people will, will buy that or not, I don't know. Uh, tell me something you believe most people don't believe. Technology is good. <laughs> I don't know. I think a lot of people believe that. So yeah, so that is that is unfair. So um, uh, this is another distinction I'd make in the in the I make this a bit in the essay, which is it's actually not the case. To your point, it's not the case that most people are negative on technology. It's the case that most elites are negative on technology right now, and so and and, and again, I think they're negative on it primarily because they view it as a threat to their power and status as elites. So I, I would say, if the form of the question is, what do you believe that other elites don't believe, like that, that would definitely be the answer to that question. Oh, okay. I'll give you one. I'll give you one. I'll give the flip side of it, which is developing new technology is like creating anything else. It's, it is an elite art form. Uh, it's an elite, it's an elite process. Not everybody can do it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's going to be a very, very, very small rarefied group of people who are going to be able to do it. What's the furthest out conspiracy theory that you believe? <laughs> conspiracy theory. I don't know if this is a conspiracy theory. I think Jung was right about the collective unconscious. I don't know if that's a conspiracy theory. Uh, maybe that's more just a medical, me metaphysical theory or something. I think there's a collective human experience. I, I, have a, I have a completely materialist explanation for that, and, and, but I don't know that that's limited to the material. I don't know that the, the material explanation is sufficient. And do you think of yourself as a spiritual person? No. No, I'm a, I am a scientist and a technologist all the way through, and I apply the scientific method to everything. And um, I, but I, I'm also like because I read a lot of history. Like I know that there are very sharp limits to that, to the explanatory power of science and technology. It does not explain most things. It's not a. It's not in fact a general purpose tool. Um, and there is a lot that we. This way, this way, the amount of things we don't know far exceeds the number of things we do know. I mean, look, you know, this is physics. Physics is a field that's like totally hung up. Like they, they've sort of hit a brick wall 50 years ago. And like the rest of the questions of like how the reality of the universe is structured and matter and everything else is like basically still unknown. And so like, how much can we actually understand? There's a great book I read one, one time that really struck me called, uh, it's called The Half-Life of Facts. And it turns out basically, if you go across time, it turns, it's, so you know, uh, radioactive material has a half, half-life is the amount of time it takes for half the radiation to, 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 to fade. So it's like this curve. Um, so this guy basically says uh, facts have a half-life. Like anything, any given, anything human society at the moment believes is, is a fact is like, and you know, there's different half-lives and he talks about the different models, but you know, it's like on average within 50 years, that will no longer be a fact. <laughs> and we will just be so confident that we will, will have, you know, it's like Newton for sure thought he had like orbital, me or, orbital mechanics figured out. And then it turned out, no, like relativity was like screwing everything up, right? And like, and then, you know, uh, Einstein thought he had relativity figured out and then quantum mechanics came along and just like completely freaked him out, right? And so like, even those guys, it, it turns out the things that they knew for sure actually turned out not to be right. 
Now, by the way, those things that they knew were very useful while they knew them, right? Yeah. It's just they weren't actually the underlying truth. And so I, I, I guess I would say yes. I, I am very open to underlying truths that we don't yet know. I, I, this, I personally, I don't know how to get there spiritually, but I, I, I don't want to rule anything out. Where would you say you're the furthest out on the fringe? I, I'm not on the fringe at all in my daily life. Like I have a lot of friends who are very, like they're super drugs, you know, <laughs> you know, the whole Burning Man, like all hallucinogens, like I'm not a hallucinogens guy or anything like that. So I don't like, I'm not, a, I don't do like helicopter skiing, um, paragliding. Like I, so there's a lot of things that I'm not out on the edge on. I'm, I'm very bourgeois uh, personally, but I'm extremely open to new ideas and particularly, you know, obviously new, new, new technological ideas, new business ideas, new cultural ideas. Like extremely, I'm like reflexively default open, and that's just like incredibly rare um, in practice. And I, and I and I'm quite honestly, it's it's most people over time develop scar tissue around new ideas. Most most new ideas don't work, right? And so like generally, your experience throughout the course of your life is people throwing up new ideas that are actually like bad ideas or ideas that don't work. And so generally, as people age, they actually get less open. They they get kind of more set in their ways. They have more rules to how they think about things. All of my scar tissue is in the other direction. It's all ideas that were good ideas that I thought were bad ideas. And as a consequence, I didn't take seriously enough fast enough. And so my big lesson over time has been, I need to be more open. Every day that goes by, the lesson the universe teaches me is you need to be more open-minded. And so I'm, I'm getting more and more open-minded as I get that older. That sounds great. It, it is great. It's great. It's, it's very that fun. sounds great. I know a handful of people who have been able to do that over time, uh, you know, at more advanced ages, and I really admire them. But it is really, and I enjoy it a great deal. It's very fun. And I, you know, I, I teach, you know, we teach it inside the firm. We, we're very deliberate about it, but it is weird. Cause it's like, I'm on a very, I'm on the opposite trajectory of almost everybody of my age cohort. Well, it's a really humble place to be. <laughs> yes. You know, you, you accept that you don't know. You don't know. Yeah. Like, look, like, am, who am I? Who, like, why on earth do I have the knowledge and insight and predictive capability to be able to say this idea is a bad idea? And the answer is I don't, yeah. I really, really genuinely don't. Yeah. And, but look, and part of that is goes back to the, the venture thing, 50-50 thing we're talking about. It's like, look, a lot of new ideas are bad ideas, right? Mm -hmm. Like a lot of them are actually bad ideas, but that's okay, right? Like the, there are going to be a lot of bad ideas and it is. Can you think of an example of something that was pitched to you that you perceived as a bad idea that turned into a very good idea that maybe even changed the world? Well, I mean, look, this AI stuff, like, I mean, look, I was trained on AI. I was trained on all this stuff, neural networks in the eighties. There was a big AI boom in the eighties. It totally failed. The conclusion from that was this stuff will never work. You know, I had that conclusion along with everybody. I just kind of took it by default. Yeah. You know, GPT or whatever. These are big breakthroughs in the last year that are very kind of shocking even to us of how well they work. But we, we knew there was, a, there was an arc that was playing out. But I will tell you, before 2012, I would not have told you that. I would have said, yeah, no, that field is dead. It's just like stick a fork in it. Well, here's another thing. Like, you know, look, I, I don't know if this is true. Uh, tell me if this is true of art also. Is there a prehistory... Like, is there a prehistory to music where like, when there's some big breakthrough in music, you can look back after the fact and you can be like, actually, somebody tried that 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years earlier and they just... It's usually a cycle. Okay. Like, I can remember when grunge happened, it wasn't that exciting to me because when I was younger, I got to experience Aerosmith. Right. And Aerosmith was my generation's version of the Rolling Stones. Right. So if you were alive in the 60s, the Stones were it. And then you were, if you were a kid in the late seventies, it was Aerosmith. Right. But then in the eighties, late eighties, it was Nirvana. Right. But it was all the same thing coming back around again. Okay. And what would have been the origin point? Was it Delta Blues or 
something yeah. even older than that. Yes, but it, I don't even know if there's an if you could say there's an origin because it probably goes back to um, you know indigenous music. Right. Right. It's it's all there's always been music. Right. It's always building off something from the past and changing and finding a new way or a new piece of technology comes along or a new instrument comes along and that changes everything. So I think with what we do, I think there's more of a material component to it, which is there are certain things that are just not possible until they're possible. And so there are discontinuous breaks. Like the story of Charles Babbage, like he couldn't build the difference machine. He didn't have the technology. The technology at the time did not permit it. It was not possible for him to do that. But by the 1930s, 1940s, it was possible. So there, 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 are, there are discontinuous changes in our world that are based on just material limitations. Having said that, almost everything that works in tech, people have been trying to get it to work for decades before it actually works, mm -hmm. right? And so even like ChatGPT, there was a chat system called Eliza in the 1950s where they tried to basically get this to work. I mean, Eliza actually passes the Turing test for a lot of people. A lot of people actually think Eliza is a real person. Wow. It's, 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 like, it's like a psychiatrist bot. And so like people have been trying to get those things to work for a long time. And, uh, or like the internet, look, the internet has a prehistory that goes back to you know the 1950s when a lot of the original work on pack, what's called packet switching was first done that didn't really take off until the 80s and 90s. And so the other thing that I'm just like really open to is, um, and where history also is very helpful, is it's just like, you know, if, 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 if something is working, if there's like a breakthrough that's working today, it almost certainly in tech is not just like a brand new thing. It's probably something where there's a 40 year backstory. Yeah, exactly. And there are probably generations of scientists and technologists and founders who tried and failed. And there's, a great, there's tons of examples in this, but one of my favorite ones is the French had optical telegraphs working like 40 years before electric wow. telegraphs. They had a system of uh, glass tubes with flashing lights under the streets of Paris, and they could flash messages uh, across, across long distances. And they had like mirrors and repeaters and all kinds of stuff. Um, and it was just like in the 1840s or something. Wow. Right? And so it's like, you know, all right. Then Because right, the telegraph takes off 30 or 40 years later. It's like, okay. Like, you know, like, was that, you know, was that a breakthrough idea or was that just like the 40-year version of... Oh, tele television's a great example. There was a Scottish inventor who invented mechanical television starting in like the 1890s. And he had a system uh, where it would actually receive radio waves and then, uh, but it was a mechanical television. So there was no tube or like electronics or anything. It was entirely mechanical. It was spinning wooden blocks in, in a grid and the blocks had different colors and different sides. And the blocks would spin to represent like red, green, or blue. And apparently, like I count the time as like if you squinted, you could actually see the picture coming through. Wow. But like it took another 30 years before you had like black and white television after that. So yeah, so there's this deep level. There, there's all, all, not always, at least in our societies, the societies we've been lucky enough to live in, there's always some reservoir of fringe thinkers who are like way out there on the leading edge, probably decades ahead of their time, probably are never gonna be remembered, probably actually originate the ideas. Then they kind of put the ideas in the air. And then 10 years, 20, 30 years later, someone finds a way to execute it. That's right. That's right. Well, that's what I said. Even neural networks, like as I said, the, the, the first AI, I was actually shocked to learn this. I was reconstructing the history of AI uh, last year. Um, and I didn't even really, I, I thought the debate started in the 40s. Uh, it actually started in the 30s about whether right. you could build computers based on the human brain. So in the 19, like how much did they know about the brain in the 1930s? Like it couldn't have been that much. No. But they knew enough to, to immediately to think like, wow, yeah. here's, here's what we could do. And so like, you know, like to me, like those are the people I really, to be that far ahead of your time right? and right. <laughs> it's just like, wow. Amazing. Right? How would you, you know, yeah. How does Moore's Law continue to work? Mm. So the- We this, never get to the end? No, you get to the end. Well, you, you, there's huge debate around this. You, you're, you're down to what's called two nanometer, 
transistors. Um, and so we're, we're down to the, the level of manufacturing that's taking place, the, the incredible leaps. If, if you ever get a chance, there's this company, I think, called Applied Materials. That's a, the Dutch company that makes the equipment uh, to manufacture modern microchips. And it's these giant rooms. It's, it's this incredibly elaborate machinery and is doing all these things. A lot of it's with the photolithography. So it's literally shining patterns with light to manufacture you know, things that end up being material. And then it's these manufacturing processes, two, nan two nanometers, you know, fractions of a, you know, tiny, tiny, tiny fractions of a human hair stuff as like the atomic level. Like a lot of the barriers for progress in Moore's law literally is we're getting down to the level of individual atoms. And the problem is like they, we can't simplify the atoms <laughs> without blowing everything up. It's unbelievable. And so, yeah, it's like manufacturing at the atomic level. You know, there's huge amounts of engineering going into trying to optimize that. There's a lot of work going into trying to make like ships three-dimensional, right? So, you, so it's not taking up another dimension. What else? There's you know a lot of work going into so-called quantum computers, right? Which is a totally different architecture design, which in theory is going to be you know another one of these huge breakthroughs that just works totally differently. By the way, there's a lot of work going into biological computers. So there's people working on like storage. Like it turns out you can store huge amounts of uh, uh, data in DNA because the human body encodes enormous amounts of information. Wow, that's the, really at the cool. Cellular level, and so there's there's people working on that. There's people working on biological computers. You know, growing computers in tanks. Wow, <laughs> so cool. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a, yeah, it's a. Th there's a whole field of information processing that all this stuff is based on, which is like what Babbage and Lovelace and these guys people came up with. And it's sort of, yeah, it's, it's the pattern is like how to store, manipulate, uh, analyze, synthesize large amounts of information. And it just turns out that the payoff from being able to do that is just gigantic. And so the amount of money that you would spend on R and D to be able to figure out better ways to do that is effectively unbounded. Amazing. And that that continues. Mm -hmm.